Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I find ourselves on the precipice of the last official podcast of the year, as well as on the eve of the release of Star Wars The Force Awakens. Topics discussed today include, yes, good old Star Wars, but also The Horror of Loon Lake, an anthology, the first 11 issues of Batman and Robin Eternal, Robin War, and our best of 2015 lists, including titles like Nimona, Giant Days, Omega Men, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, And Yet the Town Moves, The Wicked and Divine, and much, much more in this two-hour-plus podcast. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan, hello. Happy holidays, Mr. Lester. <laughs> and to you, sir, and to you. How are you doing? Uh, Great! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Woo, let's go. Yeah. Hooray. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, kill them all. No, wait, that's not Graham, my goodness. Uh, yes, we are. We are in quite a pickle. This is this is technically like our last podcast of the year, kind of. The last yeah. podcast we'll record for the year, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's the last podcast that we are going to be uh, recording in 2015. Yeah. The next time we record, it will be a whole new world. <laughs> we'll be in an election year. Oh. I feel like, well, aren't we already trapped in one of those? Uh, boy, I can't even imagine that that, that is. Yeah, it's going to get weirder. Mm-hmm. Just wait. You know, the thing that's terrible, Graham, is I feel bad because, of course, we are talking on um, Thursday, the 17th, which is which is basically Star Wars Day. It's basically... Oh, is it, is it, it's, I mean, technically tomorrow's Star Wars Day. The 18th is, in theory, the release, even though all the screenings are actually starting like 7 o'clock tonight. Yeah, and we people... We totally are... just offer fake Star Wars spoilers. <laughs> right? We should. Uh, BB-8 is actually um, a bomb. There you go. <laughs> uh, the, the missing letters are O and M. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, Jeff, your turn. My turn. Um, uh, Darth Spartacus's secret identity actually turns out to be Han Solo's lost cousin. That would, something like that would be hilarious, wouldn't it? Kylo Ren is actually Han Solo's brother. Right, exactly. What is hilarious is if one of these turns out to be right. Oh, I know. Everyone's like, you fuckers, you ruined it for me. And I'm like, what? People, neither of us have seen it. Yeah. When we're talking. We're not even, like, playing coy. Neither of us. Unless... Jeff, you somehow got to see an early screening? No, the, I, I, Graham, you were you were the person. You were the odds-on favorite for the Wait What duo to get the You were get the, you were the hope. I believed in you. <laughs> uh, I I had a great conversation with my Hollywood Worker editor yesterday, where we're like we're talking as we normally do. You know, what are you writing today? What's in the hopper? Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, "When are you seeing Star Wars?" And I honestly was like, 
this is just small talk. And I was like, I'm seeing it sometime this weekend. Kate and I are going to go and see it. You know, it'll, it'll, we'll probably do it like Saturday or Sunday, trying to avoid the crowds. And he's like, what if you saw it earlier? <laughs> what if you saw it on Friday and then wrote something about it on Friday for us to run over the weekend? Uh, what about that? Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to see it at like 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. That is too funny. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. I, I'm going to see just how crowded a matinee is, <clears throat> even if it's Star Wars. Although, I say that, I was telling a friend that I was going to go and see it on Friday morning. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you know what? that one of the schools is actually taking all their kids to go and see it on Friday morning? Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, apparently, a local school is taking it's it's a like a particular grade. It's not like all of the kids, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but like they're just there. There's no classes that morning. Wow. They're taking their kids to go and see Star Wars. I'll be very curious if it's at the same theater I'm going to. I kind of hope it won't be, but we'll see. I kind of hope it would be because I sort of feel like kids are, you know, they're going to be into it. There'll be so much energy, and and there'll be less of the kind of. Yeah, you don't want like the hardcore nerd audience who are, who are just going to bring up very particular. Exactly. Although, you know, who knows? I, as I've told you before, and I think I've said it before in the podcast, I saw Twilight at a press screening that was actually filled with specially invited fans of the books, mm-hmm. which remains one of the more surreal experiences of my life. <laughs> Why? Because, uh. Because for. You've heard the phrase vocal fans. You, yes. No fan has ever been as vocal as these girls. Oh my god. Who, there were points where I couldn't, literally couldn't hear the film because they're screaming so much. So it was, it was but, like but a then, Beatles concert. Yeah, but then midway through, they sort of turned on each other. What? So the ones who were screaming, screaming for Jacob would be booed by the, the, the Edward fans. <laughs> and like that was actually happening. It's insane. And this was like the first film. So you know, the the fandom was kind of a thing, sure, but not really a thing yet, right? And so, uh, amazingly eye opening to hear that people were actually shouting at others for you know, it's it's the werewolf guy on the screen, you know. Mm-hmm. They were like, no, no, boo, boo. <laughs> it was it was nuts. <laughs> That's pretty, you know, if the really hardcore Star Wars fans were like that, that would also be kind of fun. Yeah, I think so. Although it's like, funny, mm, yeah. you know, uh, Luke appears on screen and fans boo because they're like, "It's not Han." <laughs> <laughs> where's Lando? They just spend like half an hour shouting Lando. For just the where's Lando? That would be like the best, just like the dickiest Star Wars disruptors ever. Or like, you know, Wedge Antilles appears on screen. They're like, Wedge! 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 Wedge Antilles! You're not my Grand Moff Tarkin! Or, yeah, I don't know. I, it's... (laughs) So silly. I mean, I you know the thing that's hilarious is this really did make me think of what it because uh, this morning I don't have a TV per se that actually plays like channels and things. But so this morning at the gym, way of putting it. I know. I don't have TV per se. I've got a microwave that picks up NBC. That's right. It tells the time and it has one show. Uh, which is basically just rotating food of various types. Yeah. yeah. More <laughs> often than not a pizza, but occasionally some other things. Yeah. 
So uh, watching the news and uh, the local news was great because they had this story and, of course, the it was muted and they didn't have the closed captioning on. So it's, you know, kind of dull. You can't really tell what's going on per se apart from the big blurb, which was Star Wars Frenzy. And they cut to this movie theater. I don't know. It, like here in the Bay Area. And, of course, it's this morning and there's like – Literally, like, eight people in line. And so the camera just I, I keeps... I saw that Wired is doing a live blog of waiting in line. And you see the photographs and you're like, there's like seven people there, yeah, dude. totally. Totally. And I mean, that's one of the things that I thought was hilarious is I'm like, you know, be- between the ability to order all this crap, you know, order your tickets online, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which has really changed it. It yeah. really had hugely, hugely. I, you know, and and so they clearly were going because it was such a big thing back in the day. And that's one of the things that was funny. I figured, like, okay, they're going to queue up old pictures of the Coronet Theater and people lined around the block for the first Star Wars film. Did not? They didn't have any of that. They just kind of kept panning along these seven yeah. or eight people. You know, they're like this. This is going to get really packed later. You yeah. guys, come back, come back in an hour, and everyone's going to arrive. It's it's <laughs> it is funny. I think that a lot of people expected there to be more of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see in the coverage that people are like, "Okay, and now we'll go along the line." There's no line. Okay, the line's obviously just you know they're all in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and it's and it's. I think it's taking people by surprise that there isn't a more of a frenzy. The, the frenzy has no, frenzy is all online. Yeah, the frenzy is all happening behind the scenes, and you know, I mean, I, I remember um, being one of those poor saps who stood in line for tickets for the Phantom Menace the day it went on sale. <laughs> Literally, because I was in the neighborhood, and I was like, oh. How long can it take? You know, and oh, it was, I was in line for like six hours, six to eight hours. For yeah, but at some that. point, were you not like, fuck this shit? I was, but see, that's the brilliance of it is, is that it's, there's a point, it, cause it's that idea of like, it's not like you get a consolation prize when you leave, unless you're smart and you leave within 15 minutes. But once you put in an hour's worth of time, you're like, okay, I might as well stick it out. And oh, then at no. a certain point, it's, it's like three hours, you're like, oh, I'm such a fucking idiot. But if I leave, I won't even get the tickets and I'll be an even bigger idiot. So, you know. Now, annoying, as, uh, Kenny Rogers potentially saying, "You've got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, Jeff." Yeah, that... so what did sing the gang- gambler. What's that? Kenny yes, Rogers? yeah. Okay. Why? Why were you like potentially saying? I'm like, wow. Of it was like, is that? I, I, I honestly thought that song is too cool for Kenny Rogers. Ah, no, no, Kenny Rogers. It is a cool song, but this that was back in the day where all you needed was a cool song, and suddenly there you were, like. Singing it like you yourself were cool, even though the TV was more than happy to show you were not cool in any way whatsoever. So as but Casey Kenny Rogers was, Band you know, he, he had whatever his band was called when he did Condition. That's a great song. The Condition? What? What? Yeah, oh, what? It, it, I just dropped in and see what Condition My Condition was then. Was that Kenny Rogers? Yeah, but I can't remember the name of his band when he did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, condition song. Okay, internet, tell me. Uh, just dropped in. The first edition was the name of the band. Oh, Kenny Rogers was in the first edition. I did not know yeah. that. Graham, what a as always, what a, a font of information you are. 
Um, oh, useless, useless information. Well, please. Come on. This is a comic book podcast. We can't. <laughs> we start splitting hairs. We're in serious yeah, trouble. Yeah, come at on. I'm point. giving you Kenny Rogers facts. Yeah. Well, okay. First off, you diss Kenny Rogers fans, although I, it's kind of a shame. I was really looking forward to you trying to it, talk about some sort of strange country and Western quantum universe where, like, singers potentially do and don't sing their greatest hits. Um you know, what? okay. What else? Is, what is else is Kenny Rogers' greatest hits? What What are his songs? Oh God, I don't know. I, uh, I should know them. Give it up to me. The, the, okay, so there's like uh, there's the Gambler. Lucille. Here's my chicken. Uh, Lucille. Lucille, right? Lucille's a great song. If he if he did even that, write that's that. The one. That's the one he won all the awards for for best male country vocal performance at the 1977 Grammys. Oh, really? And at the Country Music Awards, that one Song of the Year, Single of the Year, Top Male Vocalists, uh, oh, and Single of the Year, another Country Music Association Awards, because of course. Uh, he also won Entertainer of the Year and Top Male Vocalist in 1978. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he came through. Coward of the County. I, Coward of the County. That was a song. That was a good song, actually. I mean, you know. Oh, Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town. Don't Take Your Love to Town. Yeah, there you, there you go. So what we're saying is, Kenny Rogers, there, there's a multitude of yeah, things. Yeah, seriously. You cannot, you, cannot, you cannot totally diss. Now, wait a minute. Why were you dissing Kenny Rogers? It all gets back to whatever chicken was in the microwave. Uh, oh, because oh, frenzy Gambler, the I thought, was too cool a song. Oh, know how to hold him, know when to fold him. Right. Yeah. So this is... Because you should have walked away from the, the line, is what I'm saying. Yes. Like, for me... I think by the time it hit an hour, I really would have to do a, do I really want to see this film? See, this is the weird thing. I couldn't have really given two craps about The Phantom Menace. I was like, uh I mean, Also, if you stood there for eight hours. I don't know how to describe it. Like, I'm kind of like, eh, you know, it was a little bit of that, like, nerdly obligation. But it, but also part of it was, you know, and, and that was that thing of I had – um you know, a lot of friends and coworkers uh, that I knew would be into it. Um, and so because I, I can't remember what the limit was. It was like, you were only limit, you were limited to like 16 tickets or whatever per purchase, which of course I have to spend standing in line for like eight hours, you know, you're like, um, I'm getting fucking 16. Now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, see, and that's it. I sold, I sold all, most of my friends paid face value for them, and then I sold a pair of tickets for ninety dollars on Craigslist or wow, something. Good job. Yeah, I more or less like was like, oh, okay, this is kind of like you know something like minimum wage to stand yeah, in line. I'm almost working for a living. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was like, take that world, I almost didn't waste. And then, of course, what was nice was that, um, you know, there was, in a, there was, then there's the line to get into the goddamn movie, which started crazily early as well. And my friends actually were like, you know, we got this, you can just come by like, you know, an hour or so before if you want to hang out or something. So I think I spent like an hour, hour and a half in line, but really just hanging out and gabbing with friends and being excited. And that's the thing. I'm super curious how quick, how long I'm going to have to wait to go and see this film tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause like I bought my ticket. So do I show up like half an hour ahead of time? Yeah, I don't Do I show up an hour. Right. I mean, the plus side is the theater is literally like five blocks away. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Crap. Like I, I can go and check, 
you know, an hour ahead of time, and if there's a line, then I would just get in the line. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, you uh, can totally peek. But but we'll see. We'll see what it's like. Anyway, yeah, hey, listeners, this is all old news to you, but as we speak, uh, the internet is still on hilarious, oh, my God, are you going to talk about Star Wars? I must block you all. <laughs> yeah, totally. Sense. Which, for some reason, I'm finding incredibly amusing, and I don't know why. Well, you know, the thing that is really funny is... Uh, you know, we've t- talked about it. I can't really, it's like, I sort of want to see the movie, but, but it, interestingly enough, I really don't want to have the movie spoiled for me, which is kind of, I yeah, don't know. Here's the thing though. Right. You kind of know the plot. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, there, there's, no, but you have, uh, okay, you don't know the plot, but you know the shape of the film. I have I have a you know rough I mean? guess. Yeah, I have a rough guess that that the two or three new youngsters sort of get embroiled in the 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 battle between the rebellion and what seems to remain of the empire or something. You know what I mean? Like, and they they end up coming in contact with you know the the the, the characters we know exactly. So, but it's just I don't know. I. I I guess what amuses me so much about the No Spoiler Brigade is, A, I don't think this... I think this is almost a spoiler-proof film. This will succeed or fail based upon how well it evokes the original trilogy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like you go into it knowing the entire plot, but depending on how you feel when the music starts, mm-hmm. and how how well they sort of... They do... 1977 cosplay. Mm-hmm. I feel right. is as important, if not more so, than oh, the actual story. Absolutely, that is that is that is the first priority. But I definitely get the feeling that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I I, I would not tell you the entire plot. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I respect everyone who's like, oh, don't spoil me. But I also think that honestly, the story is is like unless there is a massive, you know, third act reveal that no one even imagines is coming well there were there have been some just the rumors about the potential third act reveal has been enough to have me like even if if someone came in and came out of it was like yep so all those third act rumors yeah they're on the money i'd be like oh if there is a reveal that not necessarily don't see coming but even when you're watching you're like oh Mm -hmm. you know no matter what you don't say to people yep that happened you know, because that's just a big move. Talking about third act reveals, yeah. Um, did you see the potential, the very strange rumor about Batman Superman? That's uh, very strange because the the original source is now denying that it happened. Hmm. Uh, apparently, someone, because at this point, no one quite knows who, did an interview with the costume designer of the film. Mm-hmm. And the costume designer film said too much, basically. Uh, which I think is why all of a sudden it's become really hard to track down who actually did this interview. Right. Uh, but if it is true, the costume designer basically said, yeah, so you know the trailer that everyone was like, oh, so that's what the film is like. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Doomsday comes along, that's your act three, and they team up. Right. Apparently all of that happens in act one. What? Wow. Which, you know, is fascinating if true. Right. Right. Because then what's the rest of the film? 
Yeah, I mean, it, I can't even imagine how that would. I mean, I guess it could work. I suppose. I mean, I just, if nothing else, it would take some crazy ass deceptive editing. I think, you know, to, well, which to make it look it's that not way. impossible. Yeah, 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 yeah. You Absolutely. Know? But it's it's. I kind of love it. I kind of want it to be true <laughs> because well, because you saw that trailer, and that trailer really was like, and yeah. here's the story of the film. Yes, totally. <laughs> and I, love the idea that you would then get in and go, I know what I'm getting. And, you know, half an hour into it, they've gotten rid of Doomsday. Right. And you really are just left going, what? Yeah. What, what is going to happen? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's true or not. But I, I also, getting back to Star Wars, I don't think that's going to happen in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I think we all, I think we all know the shape of Star Wars in part because I think we all want it to be the shape of Star Wars. Hmm. I think we all wanted to basically mirror the arc of the first one. And if it doesn't, I think that might actually add to some people's sense of disappointment. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I, I, I don't know. I mean, I see, I, I agree with you, but I also think that, well, I mean, to put all, to put all our potential nerd spoiler cards on the table here, the the rumors that that Luke is going to end up being the baddie or a baddie or the main baddie. One of the things that's could be quite clever about that if they do do it is is that idea of when you watch you know Star Wars: A New Hope, you don't know who Darth Vader is apart from the way that people talk about him, and then of course you find out there's more to him than you think. I can't see that they would exactly be able to pull that off. Like they couldn't just have him with, uh, you know, Luke presented as some sort of Sith Lord without context from, you know, Han Solo and Leia and the other legacy characters or something. But you could sort of do something kind of close to it, you know? I Um, I find myself very much hoping that they don't go that route. mm Mm-hmm. But... We'll see. The reason, fascinatingly enough, my Hollywood Reporter editor was asking me when I was going to cause go and see it because he wants me to write something about it is he saw it on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And he said, you've pitched an idea that I don't even want to discuss because it will spoil the film for you. Mm. But it's something you should write after you've seen the film. Which, of course, has had me racking my brains about what I've said at any given point. Yeah, exactly. But apparently I pitched something that he thinks I should write, but only once I've seen the film. <laughs> Please be the return of Jackson. Please be the return of Jackson. Please be the return of Jackson. <laughs> uh, yeah. It would be great, wouldn't it? That would uh, be the what, best. what were they called? They, they, they weren't the Galactic Seven or whatever. What, there was a name, wasn't there? It was really close to the Magnificent Seven because, of course, it was that great... The Space I mean, Magnificent Seven. Yeah, basically. I mean, it was all the way it was back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was about that subtle. I mean, I think it was Seven to Save a Planet or something from the, the, the cover blur. But, you know, I mean, it was it was, it was was Roy Thomas being... Against the World is the cover blur because oh. I've truly just looked it up right now. There we go. There we go. So, I mean, you know, it was it was Thomas being sort of clever in the barely give it a minute's thought kind of way. Because God knows the when they did um, Battle Beyond the Stars with uh, what's his name John Hoo Ha, oh. 
John, John Sales from Walton and, and yes, George Bernard, yeah, 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 yeah. But but John John Sales, who went on to to write and direct a lot of indie movies, he wrote the script for that, and he also based that around you know the Seven Samurai, since since the whole idea that that Lucas had based uh, Star Wars off a of Kurosawa as a hidden fortress. People are like, okay, well, here's a here's another Kurosawa movie that I've seen. But but Roy Thomas took it farther. <laughs> He's like, I'm gonna put like oh, Bugs Bunny in it and Godzilla. So go go to. And um oh and I think he also had a kid didn't he have like Luke Starkiller in there? Or it, it was another Starkiller oh, character. I'm, I'm trying to find out. Oh there was Don Don Juan Quixote. Yes, yes, Don Juan <laughs> I mean really it's I I love the sloppiness isn't the right word, but the just embrace of cliche. Yeah, that are in those initial subsequent issues. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is which is interesting to me because it is sort of you know bless his heart. Roy Thomas ended up doing those issues. They ended up being closer to Spaceballs than they ended up being to Star yeah, Wars, yeah. you know? Yeah. And and so just that idea that, I mean, I think on the one hand, he was sort of like, hey, let's have a good time with it. But I think there's also a little bit of the, you know, Star Wars was a slippery creature to to catch, you know, back in those days, I think. It was, it was not the easiest no, no thing one, for... No one quite knew what it was, yeah. including the people who made it. I mean, look at the Star Wars holiday special. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Like, no one has an idea what Star Wars is, and Star Wars is this weird emergent thing. Yeah. Because you get Archie Goodwin coming on really quickly, maybe immediately after Thomas. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really Actually, early. He clearly has a much better grasp of what the film was going for. Mm-hmm. But in part because maybe he saw the film, unlike Thomas. Because yeah. Thomas couldn't have seen the film by the time he was doing, you know, script for issue seven. Ooh, I don't know about that. I mean, I don't. I, I, series started before the com- the movie came out. Yeah, it's true, but I mean, if you did, put this way, if he did see it, he probably very recently seen it. It, it. I think he'd very recently seen it. I mean, of course, there's the the idea that he'd been exposed to all this stuff. But yeah, no, I th- I just think the good one had a better sense of. I don't know. I mean, uh, of, of how, uh, basically of of. Of the type of humor that that Star Wars was engaging in, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. because that's it. Star Wars: The Next Hope. It was even as it it was honoring a bunch of influences that Lucas uh, liked. He wasn't honoring them in a deliberate quasi camp ironic way, which is exactly the way that Roy Thomas is like, yes. Oh yeah. Star Wars. I got it. Yeah. So it's here. Here's a Kurosawa movie. Oh, here's Don Juan Quixote. Get it. And oh, well, here's, you know, here's a Bugs Bunny reference. Get that. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, you just, you take all the stuff that you like and you sort of like throw it into a soup and it's Star Wars. Right. And, yeah. it, and, and it's not that. And, and Goodwin's actually, uh, rather, Thomas is really off the book very quickly. He's off by issue 11. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Goodwin, Goodwin is the writer of issue 11. And issue 10 is a fill-in that Thomas contributes to, mm. but is co- written by Don Glutt, of all people. Oh, yeah, Don Glutt, right? Well, who then later goes on to write the adaptation for The Empire Strikes Back, the um, the novelization, I think, right? He does, and yeah. he also, he, like, because I know him because he did... Oh, not Solar Man of the Atom. The the mystical one. 
Dr. Goldkeeper? No, mm. no, no. The, oh, God, I can't remember now. Dr. Spectre. He wrote ah, Dr. Spectre for right. Goldkey. Um, but he also did a lot of animation work. He wrote Transformers, he wrote G.I. Joe. Yeah, he did all sorts of movies. Actually, somewhere on the Savage Critic website, I'll have to find this up and link to it, God bless. Uh, Abbe, like, did an interview with him, you know? Oh, uh, really? Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, Abbe saw his name on, on, like, some, like, you know, event in Hollywood that he was, like, signing at. And he was like, yeah, can I show up, interview you? So... But that's great. No, Glut pops up in all the weird places. Like, I think Thomas liked him slash maybe was hoping on using him as a Hollywood contact. I don't know. But He's, he showed up. I'm looking at his Wikipedia page now. He did a shit ton of Marvel, like yeah. really random Marvel work. Yeah, like the Invaders. And he was kind of like. He did Captain, Captain America, Ghost Rider, the Invaders, Call the Destroyer, mm -hmm. the 3D Man strip in Marvel Premiere, Marvel wow. Preview, Savage Sword of Conan. He did a bunch of those uh the solomon kane backups apparently mm. uh star wars thor unknown worlds of science fiction vampire tales and a lot of what ifs mm. uh, and then so all of that's the 70s right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. randomly x-men adventures in 1993 <laughs> <laughs> that i suspect is the classic inventory story that they uh well, no, X-Men Adventures, off. he did issue four mm -hmm. of X-Men Adventures, which was the animated series adaptation. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, so, you're right. So, who knows? Yeah. Who knows how he got involved in that? Um, he also did a bunch of Creepy, a bunch of Vampirella. Right. Uh, a lot of Gold Key. Mm -hmm. uh, some Archie. Wow. Carlton Comics. <laughs> and only a handful of DC, four DC comics. That's it. Really? Yeah, super weird. Uh, three issues of House of Mystery and one issue of House of Secrets. Mm. Interesting. Don, Don Glut, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Uh, yeah. Wow. Um, career thereof. Hey, Jeff, because it is the last uh, episode of yes. recording this year, uh, I know that I made a totally half-assed attempt at a best of slash favorites of 2015. Yes. Did you? Uh, I, I did, and it was such a – I was madly making it, like, right until the time we called, and so it is going to be horrifically slanted to March and later. <laughs> okay, that's great. I will run – why don't I run through mine in the hopes that maybe I will remind you of stuff? Okay, but you know what, Graham? Unfortunately, there are two things that we had promised that we were going to do that we have to do very briefly. But <laughs> one – <laughs> One is we have to talk about the horror of Loon Lake, uh, which is a book that Chris Peterson, the what uh, loyal whatnot Chris Peterson, like uh, had us read as his recommendation. Um, I don't Let think to get it. What's that? Yeah, Let me lean over to get it. I've grown, okay. I have it. Uh, it, it is a. Uh, it's a twelve ninety nine compilation of comics. That are mostly horror based. Um, but it's not just comics. There's some pros in there too. There is. Thank, thankfully, not a lot of pros. And I and I just mean that in the <laughs> sense of I, I don't know if that pros is like good or bad. I I really skipped over it because there was just it's really it's hard enough for me to make the jump between comics and and text pieces. Sometimes it's really hard between like super short comics pieces and. Uh, a longer, a much longer text piece. So mm. yes, if if the prose piece is good, by all means, don't let us let us know, Graham. But I did not, <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't check it out. Um, uh, I, 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 this reminded me of something really, two things very 
significantly. And there's such odd things to be reminded of. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it reminds me of Cartosia Tales. Mm. Much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, again, a black and white anthology that's essentially based around a genre. Although Loon Lake has a stronger uh, theme. Because mm-hmm. Loon Lake is, is a, a, a geographical theme for the for the book it's not just you know horror it's like horror based around this one location uh somewhat yeah yeah that in in theory sure yeah no i i get it i mean there's Uh, a whereas cartosia tales is that but Mm -hmm. cartosia tales is also like but it's not a real location it's a fantasy world and it's you know what i mean it's it's it feels much more loosey-goosey it also really reminds me of the zines that I used to read in like the small press Scottish scene mm. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like it really strongly, and there's one I, for the life of me, I can't remember. And I always want to call it Speakeasy and it's not called Speakeasy. But I can see the cover in front of me right now. There was a Grant Morrison interview in the first issue. I can't remember the name of it, but it really strongly reminds me of that. There's a, a, an element of um, enthusiastic, I don't want to say outsiderness. Mm-hmm. But there, there, there's a, a an amateurishness, but not in a negative way, right? That that is all through the thing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's it it's in the strangest of places. But there's bits where you're like, I can totally tell this person's really into it, even though reading it, it reads really oddly. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, I I would say that there is a lot of. Um, bits and pieces on this that are kind of, you know, from artists and writers who are not quite there yet, which is fine, you know. It's a very variable uh, anthology in terms of quality. Yeah, I, I think so too. some stuff that is just really good, like mm-hmm. some stuff that I really enjoyed, and there's others that comes across really poorly in comparison. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in many cases, they're literally right next to each other. Yeah, they really are. They're they're juxtaposed uh, pretty dramatically. Or you'll get the classic, like, oh, here's a story with, like, pretty nice art. And then suddenly, you, you know, the story literally seems like they ran out of room. Like, you know, like four pages. They're like, okay, that's as far as I got. Time to put the end on it and send it in. And then sometimes you'll get stories that actually feel a little more fully fleshed out. Uh, but the, the, the illustration style is kind of like, eh, not quite there. I did want to mention my favorite piece was, uh, Smell a Rat, which I wanted to give a shout out to, cause it was by, uh, Stan Chow, C-H-O-U. And it's, I don't know if you remember it, Graham. It's basically the story where, um, it's, it's the, the warrior story, right? Exactly. The warriors break into the warehouse from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and that, that, that might be my favorite as well, mm-hmm. uh, if only because it's the one where everything is firing on all cylinders. That's right. That's right. The the storytelling is is strong. The the actual uh, illustration approach to the the faces and the drawing style is really consistent, and it gets to its last little note, you know, and you're like, yeah, that felt like a full thing. So yeah, that you know, was my favorite thing is my favorite thing in the thing in the anthology is literally the one page strip by Jeff Manley, the house oh. of scary. Oh, which about, wait. About, the, about the guy in the Island and the boats approaching. 
<laughs> do, do you know the one I mean? Yes, yes, like, it's do. such a dumb joke, but it's such a great joke. <laughs> I loved it. I really, really, I was like, that's hilarious. That's I would really honestly funny. read a book by that alone. Like, if that guy could keep that up right. for, for a, a whole book, I, I would be so into it. But that's at the same so time, funny. you've got that, and then you've got, I feel almost bad manners to point out things that we didn't like. Yeah, I think so too. Do, do you have that as well? But there, yeah. there, there are things that are also in there mm-hmm. that that really do come off worse by contrast to the good things. Yes. Which is yeah. a problem because, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the nature of an anthology, but there are things in here that I think I would have liked outside of the context of the other pieces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure how I feel about it, Jeff. What about you? Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. It is rough. I think I think maybe if it was a if it was a more easily available piece to to kind of come across, I think I might be a little faster to sort of wave a warning flag. Um, but I think. You know, as it is, if you're, if you come across the horror of Loon Lake, uh, either on Amazon or you're at a show where maybe the, the artists or the publishers are selling copies uh, and you flip through it, I think you'll get a strong sense of what you're going to get. And I feel like there is a little bit where doing these things is a bit of a, you're being part of a support network. You know, it's. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things. And that's, Partially why it reminds me of Cartosia Tales, because one of the things I really like about Cartosia Tales is it feels as much like a community as it does a comic book. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and I got that with this as well. I, I yeah, I would like to see... It's interesting. I'm not sure I really like the horror of Loon Lake, mm-hmm. but I want to see something else by the same people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I want to see them work together again. And part of it is I want to see them do something outside of horror just because I feel like it was stacked against me because I'm not a horror fan. You know, well, it's interesting. I felt some of the pieces had a little bit of uh, people who were kind of like, ah, horror, huh? Okay, like I can, yeah. yeah, well, just sort of, yeah, exactly. Like, I've got a story that I really want to tell about dancing, you know, or whatever. And so I think I think that it it there there were more than a few pieces in there where I was like, yeah, if you kind of squint at it, you can see the horror theme. Where there were other pieces that that very strongly were like, no, I'm in, I'm very much into this genre, and or again something like uh, Smell a Rat, where he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to start off in one genre, I'm going to loop it into horror, and I'm going to play with your expectations, mm-hmm. you know, to to go a couple of different ways. But there were there but, were a few pieces where I was but kind like, of like Gene's Golem, for example, which is a, a, mm-hmm. a really cartoony piece i'd loved mm. but it's it's really not horror no no do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like sure there's a golem but it isn't like you that's the one horror element in it and even that is not really treated as horrific yeah yeah no i i i agree i think that that's actually i think that's a good point i mean there's there's a few others like that and say invisible melvin that that kind of feel like like there's there's cartoonists here who are trying to tell st- stories more about childhood, I suppose. You know, because there's also another one, the swing, uh, a swing too far, which I'd be curious to see 
you know, there's some credit given to uh, dedicated to Ray Bradbury at the end, and it very much almost feels like a Bradbury story, although told very differently and illustrated in such a vastly different style than you could ever imagine sort of well, one of Bradbury's horror stories being told in. Yeah, I, I've got to say, I think the art in that really oh yeah, really works across purposes to, to everything that anyone is trying to do. Absolutely, absolutely. So so in that sense, I was kind of like, I, I don't know if it was some of those cases you're like, eh, it might be the limitation of the artist. I kind of definitely thought that was the case there. But I could be wrong. It could also be that that is sort of like Invisible Melvin. I felt like that was something where someone is has a very specific style that, again, wouldn't you know that that they could be better suited in in say an all ages anthology about you know kids in school or or even or even kid kid horror. Yeah, yeah. Like Melvin and and Jean's Golem both could fit really comfortably yeah. in like a first second anthology for school kids mm -hmm. like based around Halloween. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, and so there, there's kind of, and I think that's the other thing is, is that sometimes with anthologies, uh, it can just be hard enough to, to herd all the cats and make people hit their deadlines and get the material in, you know, if you're a beginning editor and anthologist, you know, much less the idea of trying to shape the material so that you've got a very cohesive anthology. So, yeah, chunk the, a chunk of the horror of Loon Lake does seem, like you said, sort of all ages, quote unquote, horror. You know, and then and then other <laughs> stuff is, yeah, right. Like maybe, like I can't even imagine like the kids who come across it being like, oh man, that was totally terrifying. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, but but you know. That's also me. Like, mm -hmm. all my favorite stories in that mm -hmm. were the ones that don't even try and terrify you. Mm. My favorite stories are the ones that take supernatural elements, but are essentially just cute stories. Right. So were you a fan With of, the, say... Except Smell Rat, which I, I really did enjoy. But Smell Rat also, just in terms of professionalism... Oh, yeah. Just feels a step above yeah. all the other, quote-unquote, serious pieces in the book. I yeah. did, on the whole... I think the comedic pieces are more successful, mm -hmm. but Smellerat really does just feel on a different level. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It it worked for me a little bit more than than some of the most of the other humor pieces. Like I said, maybe because it's at a different level. Although, um, although it, it does stay somewhat somewhat flatter. But yeah. So I don't know. I mean, again, I think it's it's one of those things where yeah, there's a little bit of a sense of. Like you said, there's a, a sense of community behind it and the feeling that you are helping a community. You know, you're participating by, by picking it up. But, like, you know, for my friends who are like, yeah, I just finished, like, Books of Blood. What should I go to next? I'm not going to be like, well, you should try this Horror of Loon Lake anthology, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's true. I'm Because it's such a varied anthology, mm -hmm. I'm not sure who the audience is. I'm not sure who I'd recommend it to. Yeah. And because it's like a, a $13 book, mm -hmm. it's not something that you can really be like, try it out for these two stories. Right. Exactly. Like, for example, 2000 AD is an anthology that's very varied, but I feel you can recommend it and be like, hey, you know, there's three really good strips in it and two yeah. aren't. But if right. you're buying it digitally, you're buying it for like $3. Right. right. Do you know what I mean? Whereas when it's $13, you can't be like, listen, 
these, you know, <laughs> right. there's 17 pages in here that you'll love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that, I think that's an excellent point. All right. So that is obligation, uh, one, Chris, thank you for being so patient. Uh, I, the next time you've got a reading Secret recommendation for us, we, what's that? we've had secrets behind the podcast. Yeah. We've been sitting on this, i.e. forgetting to do this for a while. Oh, such a long time. I, I had so both I, copies and I was supposed to mail them to Graham and then I, I lot, you know, it, the, the one copy got lost in the mail for like two weeks. So I had to get another copy. Wait, so. wait, but, but Jeff, can we talk about why it got lost in the mail? No. <laughs> Oh, come on. It's funny. Okay, Graham, tell this hilarious joke. Jeff sends to me, but forgot to put an important piece of information in the address, namely my address. No, uh, that is that is not entirely true. The my street, not the number. Yeah, I okay. There was something, or I reversed the number. I don't remember. It was, it was, it was, a, it was horrible, and it was my mistake, which has been great. Because let me tell you, now that I'm ad- addressing holiday cards, I'm just like <laughs> a nervous that's, wreck. That's best. Yeah, it's like read that to me again. Read that to me again. <laughs> exactly. One more time, Jeff. What's yeah. our second obligation? Like, I genuinely have no idea what the second obligation is. Second, second obligation. And maybe it's not really one because you were like, eh, is we had said that we would talk about Batman and Robin Eternal after I read all the issues and got caught up on it, which oh, I did. Okay, go. Yeah. Are you liking it? Yeah, it's okay. No. All right. So let's move on. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. It's, that, is it awesome. okay? Like I, I am um, because we're now on issue 11. Yes. Of this series. It's a weekly series. Uh, it's a much more focused series than Batman Eternal. Yes. There, there is one through line that they're following through. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're they've kind of switched away from that a bit. Uh, spoilers, everyone. We can spoil, right? Yeah, I think I, so. I think spoil. so. It's been out. So, for um, months, yeah. I want to say an issue or an issue eleven, uh, maybe issue nine or eight. Mm-hmm. They introduce Azrael again. Yes, uh, and I feel that feels like the biggest sidestep from the core story so far for me. Yeah, which is funny because you almost get the sense that that was. I mean. Apart from you can see his name sort of in the list of potential altered people uh, at, at at issue one, I suppose. Um, so I was kind of like, oh, I wonder if that's coming. And sure as enough, it is. yeah, as it was. So for me, for those who weren't paying attention to us talking about it or, or haven't checked out the little first issue um, roundtable where we ended up talking about it and ironically enough – both Graham and Matt were like, eh, and then both continued to read it and were like, it's surprisingly good. So, or as opposed to you, who's like, I'm going to stay with it, and then didn't. Yeah, I read the second issue, and then I was like, oh, okay, I'm definitely going to come back to it. And then, then again, the weekly issues just, like, piled up. Uh, when I sat down and read it, the, the story, which has to do with... Um, it's very much set in the current Batman continuity. So Bruce Wayne is alive, but is such a thorough amnesiac. He has no memories whatsoever of his life as Batman or really as sort of the traumatized Bruce Wayne who suffered through the murder of his parents. He's, he's Which much... is hilarious now because the Batman title by Snyder and, and Capullo has moved past that. So already Batman and Robin Eternal feels oddly in the past. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't catch – I'm behind an issue. I, I didn't read issue 47. Uh, th- things are happening mm-hmm. along those plot lines. 
Right. Uh, I, I will say no more than that. Mm-hmm. But the he is entirely a blank slate mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. has definitely been dropped. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, so uh, over in Batman and Robin Eternal, where that is still holding sway, you have uh, a a Batman who is not. You have the other Batman who is in the process, a.k.a. Jim Gordon, who's in the process of, of rounding up all the costumed uh, members of Gotham because the Gotham PD do not feel that they are it's safe to have all these vigilantes running around especially now that they've got their own city controlled vigilante and you have all these various uh robins including dick grayson jason todd uh tim drake uh who sort of kind of you sort of want to say form the backbone of this story where in which uh, Dick Grayson coming back to town as in his super spy capacities uh, ends up getting involved in a old conspiracy slash plot that seems to point to the existence of a, a ring of genetically uh, of rogue genetic engineers ran by a, a person called Mother who may have created essentially perfect Robins or Robin or Robins for Batman himself. But it's also not merely genetic modification. There's some element of mind control in there as well. Oh yeah, that's true. In fact, based on this issue, the mind control is like a much stronger element of it. And in Mm. fact, the, the way the first issue kind of played out was very much an idea of, it's almost invasion of the body snatchers, the idea that mother and her ring could control just about anyone and anybody that you're with could suddenly turn on you at any moment. That sort of paranoia in the beginning, they keep sort of coming back to it in a very hurried way throughout the issues. It, it, and I feel that it peaked uh, with the the – is Tim actually working for a mother right. thing around issue six? Yeah. I, I feel that you can't, I mean, you obviously can go back to it and they will, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I feel that you can't really play out the, are one of our heroes, is one of our heroes actually, uh, you know, working for the other side? Right. I, th- I think, I think you've, they've played that card. Yeah. Which is kind of a shame in a way because it, it's a potentially a very strong card. I mean, I guess they felt they had to play it and get rid of it. I mean, it's a good strong card to play. So when it's coming up in issue six or issue five, you're like, you know, holy crap, things are moving fast. In fact, one of the charms, I think, of Batman and Robin Eternal is, like you said, there's just one storyline. They jump back and forth between time because the mother is tied into one of... Dick Grayson's first cases as Robin with Batman, where he finds himself um, uh, as Robin worried that he is not um, uh, strong enough uh, to be able to be the Robin that Batman needs. So while they pursue Jonathan Crane, the scarecrow from Gotham City all the way over to Prague, uh, the current team uh, relies on Dick's memories of that case to be able to try and track things back and, and hunt down mother, the current status of the ring and, and what's happening. Uh, so for me, I, I feel on the one hand, I, I feel like you said that it, it seems at least superficially a lot more focused 
things got a little problematic when they essentially split up the Robins. Yeah. Um, and, and so that they could go and deal with this, uh, the Church of St. Dumas, which in the, the Snyder New 52 continuity is this kind of crazy techno church. Um, I have no idea if it was actually that strong back in the, the, a concept back in the original, cause I just wasn't paying attention, but, but parts of it seem sort of enjoyably ridiculous. Uh, I, for myself, I just really, hold on a second, sorry. I, I've totally had some sort of weird bronchial thing right before we started talking and I've been kind oh, of no. like, sort of like reaching around like, where's my inhaler? Where's my inhaler? Like I'm tech, I'm, I really, it makes me the most nerdy of all. Do, do you want to take a break? Uh, no, cause I can't find the fucking thing. I mean, I've already dug around in my bag and I'm like, no, it's not there. So I have no idea what I'm going to do to, to sort of stop this, but, um, it, it'll be fine. It just means I've got a lot of lingering coughitude going on. Uh, anyway, sorry to jump. Well, let me cough one more time. <coughs> I, I feel the other thing that was hard is even before the story diverged and you ended up getting two Robins trying to hunt down uh, the the Church of St. Dumas, its connection to Mother, I sort of felt that there were right up until issue five or six where Dick goes to find out if Tim Drake's parents, if Tim is who he says he is and it, and it's, and it starts a confrontation between the two of them in a bit of a, a Robin rift. I already, at least at, from that point on, I felt like the stories were filled with lots of like, oh, and here's an excuse for who people are going to punch this issue. But I, yeah, I, 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 I would agree that like in the last three issues, I feel like it's been diluted significantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just, it really has. I mean, the uh, the thing that's actually interesting to me is is that... I'm starting to realize it's a bad sign when I start tuning out on the story and really appreciating like the art. Cause I do feel that some of the art from about, I don't know, issue eight on or something has really just kind of been my jam. I've really, really liked, uh, Jean Viev's Valentine's script was interesting, but the, the art team of Alvaro Martinez and Raul Fernandez, they had some very lovely work going on mm-hmm. in, uh, in the ballet house with the, both just the action scenes and the sense of atmospherics that I thought were, were really strong. Yeah, did especially read, issue seven. Did mm-hmm. you read Valentine's Catwoman? No, not at all. Uh, it's interesting you say you like her script is interesting. She's a very stylistic writer, mm-hmm. and because I think her issues, her two issues, especially the ballet sequences, yeah, did feel very stylized in a way that felt different from the rest of the series, mm-hmm. but very close to her Catwoman. Mm. Uh, a- and so part of me, part of me is like, yeah, if you if you dug that or if you you found it interesting, mm-hmm. you should really track down her Catwoman, which is a fascinating take in the 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 character Hmm. i might i i i I really might because part of me was like i wasn't sure how much of it because i the name did not ring any kind of bell at all so i was like huh this is not a name that i'm familiar with here she is doing uh you know a, a batman and robin weekly book uh but also just very the ballet stuff in a way it it kind of reminded me of um it's funny you mentioned Catwoman because it's like it sort of reminded me of early and Nocenti in the way that Nocenti would take sort of 
her interests that are that were yeah. outside comics and try and, f- and outside superheroes and try and figure out a way to plug them in, to, which to make sense is very fitting for uh, Valentine's Catwoman. Mm. Valentine's Catwoman was a fascinating, if not always entirely successful, mm-hmm. uh, take on. Not only on Catwoman, but on what a superhero book can be hmm. in today's market. Because she pretty much ditches, she pretty much turns it into a straight up crime book. Hmm. But a straight up crime book that is very interested in classic liter- classical literature. Huh. Wow. That's uh, interesting. And some of her character moments don't land perfectly. Mm hmm. But the ways in which they don't are always interesting. Hmm. It's such a shame that she's not writing Catwoman. Or, or really, it's such a shame that she's not doing any other books at DC right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I actually think, and this is going to be a really weird thing to say, I think she's too feminine a writer to get a success at Marvel. Mm. Um, of course, just wait. I'll say this and, you know, the day after this comes out. They'll be like, Genevieve Valentine is writing, you know... I was going to name a taking over a force. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. no, but yeah, but like even that wouldn't wouldn't work. It'd have to be a solo character, I think. But like Black Widow is the obvious suggestion. She's mm. she's taken. Red Widow is taken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. Actually, I'd love to see her to Scarlet Witch. Now that I think about it, mm. I'd love to see her to Scarlet Witch. Hmm. But um, yeah, I, 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 it's a shame that she's not doing more of this sort of thing because the tension between the genre and what she's seemingly interested in. Yeah. Made for really interesting reading. Well, and I think really helped in the case of those two issues of Batman and Robin eternal in a way, because there's such a, um, I, I feel like weekly books can totally turn into just kind of a, a fucking, you know, free for all in terms of like, oh, what's the page turn? Like, how do we get to the next page? Like, everyone just kind of seems like they're just barely holding their shit together. And I really yeah. felt like, you know, she was trying to put a little bit extra, go the extra mile for those two scripts as, as odd as they were. And it really ended up, especially with the, the artists working on them. Uh, coming up with some really unique and I thought I thought very lovely visuals, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so it, it'd be really interesting. I have a question for you: mm-hmm. it's Batman and Robin related, right? Uh, are you reading the Robin War books? I am not. I'm not. In fact, one of the things that was really funny was piling up because because in order to read all these issues, I had to find all these issues, which. Uh, entailed a lot of digging and in the course of that i was also like i realized i was putting together a bunch of stuff that um i hadn't read so like i'm like five i think i'm almost like five issues behind on grayson like issue 15 came out and i'm like i don't think i've read issue 10 so i had a stack sitting there of those um i chose instead to hit the the two issues of Twilight Children that I hadn't read and I wanted to make a good strong go at Omega Men to see if we mm-hmm. uh, would end up talking about it, if it'd pop up in your year-end list or what. Spoilers, um, it will. But uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I have well, not. It's, the reason I ask is, and this is something that Matt Terrell asked me in email, mm-hmm. he essentially said, isn't it weird that there's two series that are kind of doing the same thing? Mm-hmm. Because We Are Robin is... 
is a crossover that is basically based on, hey, it's all the Robins together. Mm -hmm. They are dealing with kind of the pathology behind Robin. Mm -hmm. The the idea that it is inherently dangerous and a bad idea to have kids be involved in a war on crime. Yeah. Um, and, And of the forces who are trying to stop them for both good and bad reasons. Mm-hmm. Not only the bad guys, but also the, the good guys who are like, this is a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm loving Robin Moore. I am hmm. stunned that I'm loving Robin Moore. Hmm. But I really genuinely am. Uh, it has resulted in, for my money, the strongest issues of We're Robin yet. Hmm. Uh, a really fucking strong issue of Grayson. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the other title it's been through so far? I'll have to look at the, the lineup because it's, it's got one issue left, which is, uh, Robinson of Batman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Detective Comics issue was fine. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it was perfectly strong. But yeah, the Grayson and We Are Robin issues are just great, are really good. And I say that as someone who doesn't really care about Robin that much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like it's hitting in many ways the same thematic points. As Batman mm. and Robin Eternal, but in a much faster way. It's a five-part story, right? As twenty-six parts, um, <laughs> and in a way that doesn't involve retconning anything into the, the history of Batman, mm. mm-hmm. because it all takes place, quote unquote, now, right in the present. It's all forward. Yeah, um, yeah. The 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 Grayson issue in particular is really good. You'll. You'll find that out when you read it, Jeff, if, mm-hmm. if that's on your, your to-do list. But it is, it's essentially what happens when the Robins, uh, Jason Todd, Dick Grayson, Tim Drake, Damian Wayne, decides to train the We Are Robin kids mm-hmm. and what that means to each of them. Hmm. Yeah. And I, in 20 pages, you get a lot of information in. Which it's I... Tom King, again, it's Tom King being... Very dense, while making it feel like a very eerie story. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I think that would be, I honestly that is what more of Batman and Robin Eternal uh, needs because although I feel that the book because the book ends up having approximately five or six main characters. You've got the three Robins in Robin Eternal, uh, Dick. Tim and Jason, but then you've got the reintroduction of Cassandra Kane. Mm-hmm. You have Harper Rowe, and you sort of, I thought you were going to actually have a uh, Stephanie Brown spoiler who, who actually had some of the best bits, I think in the second issue. Um, mm-hmm. And then disappeared. Completely disappears, which is, which is super strange, right? I, maybe it's because she seems to have, become part of the cast of Batgirl. Oh, maybe. Maybe that's but it. It was yeah. very strange because she did seem to be one of the series' big characters. Yeah. In the first two issues and then vanished. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, Which is, yeah, very, very problematic. Uh, but I also feel that even though you have the occasional moments, it started, I thought, relatively well with the camaraderie between the three Robins. And then of course things becomes supposedly strained, uh, as more secrets come out. And as Dick begins acting much more like, uh, obsessively 
AKA like Bruce in order to try and uncover this mystery. Cause he's so personally involved in it. Um, but I, I would, as it goes on, everyone's characters are kind of, again, the problem with a weekly book with rotating writers is, is that people are mainly more worried about making sure that they hit the right notes and that the characters are on brand than they are about being able to twist or deepen them, you know, yeah. apart from whatever story points that, that are being hit, which are largely at this point, 10 or 11 issues in are largely Dick Grayson's. Well, so. I, the other problem is you're doing a weekly book with, as you said, five main characters. Yeah. But of those five main characters, only two do not have a book of their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you can only really do meaningful character moments with Harper or Cassandra. And Cassandra is purposefully being kept as an enigma. Mm-hmm. Yes. And instead of, like, for my money, what you then do is concentrate on Harper. Harper has pretty much been sidelined for the entire thing. Yeah, a huge chunk of it. And in fact, in the later issues, in, in the most recent issue, issue 11, one of the things that is... uh that classic case of like, oh, this is what they should have set up or this is what someone figured that they were going to set up. But the in order for issue 11 to have any impact whatsoever, you have to believe that that Harper cares so much about Cassandra Kane, who she appears to have known a very short time, that even if you're kind of being you're, – you're thinking that they're trying to – push a lesbian subtext to blossom into text at some point, it still doesn't feel very uh, earned, you know? Yeah, it, it, it does not feel real. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like it, it, it's, it's properly there yet, which is, is a problem. Yeah, because it, it's starting to motivate how it's, in theory, driving these characters' actions. And, and that... That's kind of tough. I mean, that being said, at a certain point, because I was reading them kind of like one after the other after the other, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's I, it's weird how much I appreciate, <laughs> just God help me, good old Batman. So whenever we'd flash back to the first story, you know, the, the, the year one sort of story with Scarecrow, there's one issue relatively later on where the flashback is more than just like two pages where it's actually Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. a little bit too long compared to what the rest of the other issues have done, like, you know, eight to 10 pages. And that's was kind of, it was, it was stronger than I thought it would be. One of the things that I think is fascinating is the idea. um, And, and, I don't know if you had a time to to formulate any theories about the book or even if you necessarily care to, but what's interesting is because of the, the notes that are clearly being left for the writers, every time we go to a flashback scene with Batman and Robin, it's not just the fact that you, that, that basically you have Robin saying each time that he like, he's like, I know you're not, I'm not the person that, you know, yeah. you want me to yeah, exactly. be. Exactly. I, I, yeah, I'm yeah. not measuring up. And yeah. Batman is to an extent comforting him, mm-hmm. but because it's Batman, not really. Right. Exactly. Because you're trying to sow the seeds of maybe he did genetically modify slash brainwash Dick Grayson. Right. Right. Which I think is, 
I'll be curious if it comes to what I, I sort of half hope that they're doing, but I'm also worried about because I, I, I don't know if it would sort of more or less break the character. Um, but you're thinking they will? Because I, I, for me, all of that feels like false jeopardy. Oh, exactly. It because be- I, 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 I'm just like, of course he didn't. Right. Of course right. He, he didn't. I think what they're going to do, I hope, sort of, in that I worry that it will break the character, is, is that is that Batman didn't do that to any of the future Robins or to Dick Grayson, but Dick Grayson did it to himself. Yeah. That his own insecure, cause that's the note they keep punching in each thing is his own insecurity about measuring up. And so as it, it comes out that he is to, to use uh, Phil Dick's uh, phrase from a scanner darkly, uh, narking on himself. So uh, I don't know. I, I, that would make- uh, for an interesting story, but I think it would break the character too much. I don't think DC would be willing to do it. Yeah, I. Okay. Who can tell? Who can right, tell? Right. Who can tell? I mean, God knows if there's a character that they've been more than willing to play fast and loose with, it's it's Dick Grayson, you know. Yeah. And it might give them. It, it might give them the story beat to allow him to kind of he and Batman to sever ties to make the Grayson story be able to spin off more in its own direction. Once Batman's reestablished Batman and as Bruce Wayne is reestablished in place, mm-hmm. you know? So, but we'll see. Part of me is kind of like, ah, be interesting. But like you said, I, I, at the same time, the thing that's rough is, is that the idea of Dick Grayson as sort of the one sane grounded character in the Batman exactly. universe, it it feels risky to to do away with that. Yeah, that would not be that would not be something I'd want to toy with. Which, of course, you know, it makes it all the more tantalizing. I'm sure for people who are trying to create craft events or or make a but, story with stakes. Put it this but, way: I would not put it beyond uh, anyone involved with the book. Definitely making that seem like the case, mm-hmm. but giving themselves an out that they take later. Yeah, yeah, that could be as well. So, which God knows, by, by the time we got to the end of Batman Eternal, they were like, ah, ah. all right, hands are clean of that. Boy, ah, <laughs> all that heavy lifting. We don't even have to worry about that for the last couple of issues. What a relief. I know you're so all what, relieved. What you're saying, Jeff, is it's not on your best of 2015 list. Do you see how I, I brought nice. it back around? Yeah. That's, that's that? yeah. That was Graham. We got to give you a podcast with somebody who doesn't <laughs> desperately need an inhaler uh, as his podcasting partner. Yes, Graham. I have to admit that I do not think that it did. Although my 2015 list is really turning out to be a weird beast. Uh, the my 2015 list ultimately ended up being uh, favorites more than best of. Yeah, and right. What I discovered, and I don't know if this is true of you as well, mm-hmm. is how much old stuff I read. Yeah. Like how much stuff I don't really feel like I can include this year, even though I really want to include it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Nimona would definitely be on there because mm-hmm. I read it in full this year for the first time, but it's a web comic that finished last year. Yeah. I... Uh, one, uh, this one summer would mm-hmm. totally be on there, but again, it's from last year. Mm-hmm. I personally think that is okay because my list of stuff has a variety of things. Also, 
at least for me and uh, you know the nature of the comic book industry has changed so much you know of course that you can pick up a trade you know the I, the difference between new and new to you you know yeah, is, it's, is it's almost meaningless these days yeah and it just keeps growing and growing and especially with uh, so much of the stuff that's available via digital as well you know mm-hmm. you can you can stumble across stuff that you think is fabulous but is also like really like you know again is like 30 or 40 years old so how do you you know how do you actually mark that so well, that being said was, let's let's yeah, hear about your list yeah. uh Nimona is is probably my favorite book this year mm. Nimona i i just adored i adored everything about it mm-hmm. um i think noel stevenson's art is great mm-hmm. it, it's it's super sketchy in a way that is really attractive really inviting mm-hmm. uh, and very characterful mm-hmm. it's very stylized mm-hmm. uh, and, and stylized in a way that Kate Beaton's can be at times uh, in that it's it's very theatrical mm-hmm. but I, I just I love it and I think it's a really funny book and I think it's a, a very I, I love its ambivalence. Have you read Namona? You know, it's the it's the worst admission in the world. I had it in my hands, check because I, I checked it and like two or three other things out from the library, and then I re- rather than get into that cycle of like, oh, just extend this renewal and make other yeah, people yeah. sad, I ended up returning it. But the pages that I flipped through because it's because it's a substantial book. There was a sequence where. Nimona and what I'm assuming is the villain, although I don't know, are trying to watch a, a zombie movie together. And uh, he keeps critiquing the movie, like talking through it and, and making points about like necromancy and stuff. And she's just like, oh, my God, would you shut up? And I was just like, OK, I've got to come back for this because this is yeah, just... it's, it's super. It's I want to say cute, but that sounds offensive. But mm-hmm. it, it's it's very the character interactions are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like they're really, really charming and really silly in a way that makes them feel real. Mm-hmm. I feel that other writers would try and go for the pathos more because at its at the heart of Nomona, which is a, pretty much a comedy book, it's a tragic story, mm-hmm. and the way it ends is purposefully sad. Is 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 purposefully tragic. Mm-hmm. The it, if the core of the book is the relationship between Nimona and Blackheart, mm-hmm. um, Blackheart betrays Nimona, mm-hmm. and that's the end, and never gets a chance to apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there's, you know, there that that that's a very sad ending, mm-hmm. and in many other respects, it's a happy ending. Like in betraying Nimona. The Blackheart gets many things that he's been longing for, mm. um, and in betraying Nimona, the world is saved. You know, mm-hmm. you can't you can't feel that sad. The world is saved, but 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 you do feel sad mm-hmm. because there was this person who trusted him and didn't trust anyone else, but trusted him, and he mm. betrayed that trust. Oof. You know, and so and you have all of this within this book that is also. You know, has that scene that you're talking about that is goofy as shit, mm-hmm. and has like very a very Venture Brothers approach to the fancy genre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and which is also at the same time as all of that, telling a love story between Blackheart and his nemesis. Mm-hmm. 
uh, without ever like coming out and saying it. Right. You know, it's 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 all subtext, but it's very clear subtext mm-hmm. that, that that this is at heart for Blackheart uh, a story about a jilted love. Mm. You know, so there's there's so much in this book. It's it's so it's genuinely wonderful. It, it, it's really really great, and it's one of those books. And I think you see this a lot with with web cartoonists like Emily Carroll's another, where the the craft is so amazingly spot on and amazingly complete, and it feels like they've come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You're just like, what the hell? Like, what? Why is that? Why is this so good? Mm-hmm. And it really throws a lot of quote unquote mainstream comics, a big two comics, into relief mm-hmm. because they just don't have that level of craft. No, Nimona is an amazingly well done book. I, I, I genuinely love it. And it probably is the favorite thing I've read this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, even though it came from 2012, uh, 2014 rather, mm-hmm. it, it's, and, and it probably started like way, way back in the past. Uh, it's, it's definitely the favorite thing that I've read this year. Mm-hmm. Um, this one summer is another one. Mm-hmm. I, I raved about it at the time. And really for me, it's all about the art. The artwork in this one summer is just, just jaw dropping. It's 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 so beautifully illustrated, it's beautifully observed, and so naturalistic, mm-hmm. while not being photorealistic at all. It entirely shows photorealism, but nonetheless feels more true to life than you know any. My name is Brian Hitch, and I can draw the best trouble you've ever seen in the world could ever hope to achieve. Right. Um, it, it's a, a a really well written book as well. Mm-hmm. It's, but I, I find myself much more drawn towards the art because it's a really well written book in a genre that I don't really care for, and in a way that I feel like I've seen before or read before, I should say. Right. And so I'm like, oh, you know, well, of course, this is going to happen. Here comes the big emotional drama bit. Oh, this is her hidden trauma. And I, you know, I say that even though I, I genuinely didn't enjoy, the, enjoy their, their writing. Right. But, but I, I, I was very aware of, of the, the tropes. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I was like, I, I know this is coming. I know what's, what's going to happen now. But the artwork is just so good, Jeff. So good. It's, it's, uh, Jillian Tamaki. Yes. Mariko Tamaki is the author and Jillian Tamaki is the illustrator. And it's just it, it. Google up some pages, and you'll see the artwork. And yeah, it's lovely, lovely, lovely stuff. Um, what else is on my list? Oh, uh, Giant Days. The, oh yeah, John Anson, uh comic about kids going to college, mm-hmm. which is just funny. Like that and Bad Machinery are funny in a very particular fashion, mm-hmm. uh, and have a very particular tone that I really think it's uh, you either get it or you don't mm-hmm. thing uh, and I don't because you, you're not a massive fan you, you it didn't really do anything for you and I totally understand why because it is such a specific appeal I need to I need to give it another go I definitely think that um, especially now that that volume of bad machinery that I purchased for the Kindle because it was crazy cheap didn't it just didn't 
look awesome on the Kindle app. Now that it's in Comixology, I'm kind of hoping that I will be able to to give it the attention that uh, it I, deserves. You might want to try Giant Days, hmm. which is obviously written with an entirely different pace because it's meant to be a 20 page comic as opposed to a one panel, a one page a day, one page a week script strips. Right. Um, and Giant Days feels much more accessible mm-hmm. in many ways. Uh, it's f- not as magical realist as Bad Machinery is. Magical re- Bad Machinery really does like to have wacky ass flights fancy. Right. Whereas Giant Days is much more just, here's my sense of humor. It is a, it's not even a coming of age comic because it's, it, that sort of denotes that the characters are going through these important rites of passages as opposed to what the comic is, which is more or less, they're going through these rites of passages and they don't realize it. And by the way, they're making a terrible mess of their lives because that's what you do when you're in college. Like you make a series of terrible decisions. Oh, that is too funny. Uh, which, which is, you know, really appealing to me. And mm-hmm. I, I, like I said, I just find him a very, very funny writer. Mm-hmm. Um, which, okay, so that also goes into The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is all about the writing for me. And feels very tonally similar to Giant Days. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, Squirrel Girl is something you told me to read for months before I did. I didn't That's read right. it until it was Marvel Unlimited. And I was like, this is my favorite thing. Why did no one tell me? <laughs> Ignoring the fact that, like... People had been telling me for a while, but I love it. It's, it's the it's the feel good comic superhero comics that that I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. It really is something that is just that embraces its ridiculousness with such a sense of joy that I I can't say no to it. Mm-hmm. It's it really is just it's what I think I'd want a, a Captain Marvel book to be. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. where it's just like. Being a superhero is awesome. Yeah. That, you know, that's what it comes down to. Being a superhero, you guys, is really great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, it is, it made my list, absolutely. Um, Unbeatable Score Girl by, uh, Ryan North and Erica Henderson. Just really great. I actually, it's interesting because even though Henderson, because I think North is such a strong writer, Henderson's work is not. Oh, it's, it's, it's yeah. Or you could say it's not good because I was going to say it's 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 real. I really enjoy it. I, I was going to say it's not always to my taste, and I don't know sort of why. Maybe it's because the you know the line weight's kind of uniform, or the characters all kind of have the same eyeballs for the most part. But <laughs> but I can't imagine reading Squirrel Girl without Henderson doing the art, and I think that if she if, I think if she departed, it would really... It would be a very different book. It'd be a very different book. I mean, you know, there was that uh, Secret Wars romance one-shot that that Marvel came out with uh, uh, several months back that I picked up. And they have a Squirrel Girl story in it that's told by... It's written by Marguerite Bennett, and I forget who's doing it. And Chris Yeah. And it just did not click for me nearly as much. So... Interestingly enough, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, it's, to me, it's, it's such a, um, it's such a successful transition of web comics to print comics in that every, all of the pieces feel very organic. And I kind of can't imagine it. I can't imagine it without, without the whole 
thing. Yeah, exactly. If it's if it's not that particular team, mm-hmm. I think it would feel off kilter. Yeah, I, th- I think North and, and Henderson really balance each other out well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, uh, Convergence Shazam. Oh yeah, that's also Ta- on my list. Talking about Captain mm-hmm. Marvel uh, was just another joyous superhero book that embraces the superhero. You know, and, and I, Jeff Parker, you know, Jeff Parker's writing makes me laugh, mm-hmm. and Doug Shiner's art is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Doug Shiner's art is so beautifully clear, and and there's so much space in it mm-hmm. that I really like. And also, Jordi Belair did the colors, and so obviously it's colored beautifully. Right. Um, it's just a, you know it's one of those platonic ideals of a of a superhero comic for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's strong stuff. I mean, it was only t- just two short issues of it, but it really did kind of like you said with Squirrel Girl. Uh, it kind of has a little bit of the yes, this is the comic book story. This is the superheroes type I want to be reading right now. Yeah, you know? yeah, very much. Uh, and so I'll go from that to almost the opposite: Martian Manhunter. Mm. Which have you been reading? No, not at all. In fact, I don't even think I was tracking, which is sad because I know that you've mentioned it on the podcast, but it was literally in the course of like, I think reading Batman and Robin Eternal or else some of the issues of Omega Men where I'm like, oh, Rob Williams is doing Martian Manhunter. Huh, I should check that out. That's probably a thing. So It's it's Rob Williams doing Martian Manhunter in the same way that uh, Grant Morrison's did Animal Man or Alan Moore did Swamp Thing. Wow. Which is, what if I do a completely revisionist take on the character? Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where, hey, Mars isn't dead at all. And maybe John Jones was sent here as a sleeper agent to prime an invasion. Hmm. Uh, and also, maybe John Jones didn't know this consciously, but did know it subconsciously and split himself into four sleeper agents of humans who activate after John Jones is killed. Wow. Hmm. That's a that's a pretty uh, big sprawling idea, yeah. Uh, and so it, it's it's ver- it really does remind me of like the nineteen eighties British writers coming to do the, the American superheroes. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean it's literally the everything you know is wrong, but I'm replacing it with something that is bigger. And does that work for you? I mean, it's clearly it's on your best of list, but. I should say, is is it problematic at all? Because I know you had some pretty strong feelings about. You know, unlike Animal Man, which I don't think anyone really had really strong feelings for, or, you know, Swamp Thing, I think, was a little more radical. But John John Jones has been kind of... John has been around for like 60-odd years. Yeah. And and has been a mainstay of Justice League. Exactly. For a lot of that time. Mm -hmm. Um, It's one of those things that if the book wasn't as good as it was, I would have so many problems with it. Mm -hmm. But... But the book's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, to spoil it, even though you've not read it, and I think you should, mm-hmm. John Jones gets written out because he discovers that he is a sleeper agent for the Martian invasion and kills himself. Mm. Wow. Uh, and before he kills himself, he fights the Justice League, but fights the Justice League by making them think that he's fighting them because he's a telepath. <laughs> and he just gets on with what he's doing. That's you know, great. so there's really smart little things like that. Mm-hmm. Um and so there's very it's it's not as if Williams did not understand who the Martian Manhunter that people loved was. Mm-hmm. 
it's that he wants to do something else with the idea, mm-hmm. which is it's you know again it's additive. Mm-hmm. It's not everything you know is wrong because it's yes and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know that that's very attractive to me if it's a character I like. Mm-hmm. For for similar reasons, not on my list, but something I definitely considered was like action comics mm-hmm. because I think that Pack and Cooter are, are doing. You know, they're dealing with all the Superman's not got his powers, even though he's getting his powers back in March. Uh, thing. Have you seen the solicits? Like, no, no. You have outright come out and said Superman's getting his powers back in March. Oh boy! Wow. Um, but like they, they took the you know he's going through these changes thing and ran with it, mm-hmm. and so you got like this is Superman's place in his community. This is Superman's moral standing. This you know, which is 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 really attractive to me as a Superman fan, right? Because it's not changes for the sake of changes. It's changes, but we're going to tell you something about the core character as a result. Yes. You know, and Martian Manhunter does, does very much the same thing for me. It's interesting. I was totally sure that the Superman action titles would have ended up on your best of list because, you know, I mean, sort of- they're pretty much on there because I kept them off for the idea of a top 10, which is actually 13 titles long. Mm, mm-hmm. So, you know. It's kind of on there. Um, okay, uh, Omega Man, which you su- suggested was probably going to be on there, is on there. Which right. is, I think I've come to terms with it being my favorite Tom King title. Wow. Uh, because it seems to be the one where he can marry his love of political maneuvering, his love of format-heavy comics, and amazingly fantastical uh elements mm-hmm. the best mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like the most successful connection of all of those things for me it's interesting because you know i i i did sit down and was like god damn it i'm going to sit down and and make a big go of go of this and it, it's really a title that for for me takes off in the third issue um and then issues three, four, and five, uh, which I read, and not not entirely in a row, but in a relatively short period of time, it was like are really strong, really really strong issues, uh, and very dark. Um, I'm pretty happy with where they're going, although I I don't know. It's it's. It's interesting. I my problem is is there's something there's still kind of something missing for me in Omega Men as much as like I said like issue three had a really just that very beautiful twist which leads you exactly into issue four. Yeah, you know, sort of like where you know where it's going and you're kind of like. There's kind of that weird, like, oh, it's not going to end up going there because this is, you know, a comic book, I guess. And, you know, sort of the quote-unquote good guys win. It's not going to go in the direction that it does. And then it does. And then issue five was, I thought, by far the most successful in terms of being able to world-build, plot advance, and and deepen the character's all at the same mm-hmm. time. You know? I feel it's it's also the most ambitious King title. It's pretty goddamn ambitious. Yeah, it is crazily ambitious. Um, maybe to its detriment. 
because one of the things that I am nervous about with Omega Men is it's not going to be able to stick the landing. And I don't, I have no idea what the landing is. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. genuinely don't know where it's going. Mm-hmm. But I am already nervous that it's going to have an unsatisfying conclusion. Yeah, it's it really is interesting to me in that regard. Of like, I, I can't see. I, we'll see. We'll see where it goes because I think he he's really trying to t- because of his ambition. It, the other thing that I think helped me hugely uh, to appreciate issues three, four, and five of Omega Men is reading that first issue of the Sheriff of Babylon. Um, Mm -hmm. And that first issue of the Sheriff of Babylon feels like, like a pocket summation, uh, potentially anyway, a pocket summation of the themes. Yeah. Very similar in, in the sense of, you know, just the, the nature of the good guys by by the definition of trying to limit themselves to being good guys are really not following what's actually happening in the story. And what's happening in the story is a larger sense of um, political manipulation. It's very interesting, too, because in that sense, I feel like by the time the end of Omega Man comes, depending on whether or not it sticks the landing, someone should be able to get a really decent column or two out of the difference, comparing and contrasting Jonathan Hickman and Tom King, because they have a lot of very similar obsessions, and yet they play out in such very different ways for me. You know, I feel that that King is King's interest in politics is much more grounded in a um in in an unfortunate there's there's a there's always an undercurrent of genuine tragedy to it, at least in you know in what I've seen of Omega men and that one issue of Sheriff of Babylon, and even to an extent going on with Grayson, I think, but you know, whereas Hickman, it's kind of an, it's, it's just, it's neat in a complexity is neat kind of way, you know? Um, they're both of course very heavily. They seem to both be formalists, but I feel like King is working a lot harder to try and get to the point where, the formalism reinforces that kind of uh, the the points that he's trying to get at, or that he's he's trying to capture about the the complexity, the tragedy because of the complexity of human experience. Um, so. To be glib, I think that King is actually trying to say something with his formalism mm-hmm. and his complexity, right. and I think that for Hickman, the formalism and the complexity is as much of an end goal. Mm-hmm. As any message the story may have, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, but, uh, yeah, you know, that might just be because I'm, I'm not a massive Hickman fan, right? Right. Um, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So moving on, talking uh, talking of endings that I I didn't really feel, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, the book shows up in here zero. Mm. Uh, I'm I, the further I get from zero, mm-hmm. the more I think that I'm not convinced by the ending. Mm-hmm. But god damn it, if I didn't like the journey mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know I, I think that that was a, a really 
intense and curious and ambitious series mm-hmm. in, in a way that at times felt out out of control and and freewheeling in a bad way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but was just fascinating throughout mm-hmm. and you know the 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 ending is such a fucking turn hmm. you know you, did you make it to the end of zero no no it was that classic like on the to-do list kind of deal yeah. and no. it's but it's it just it goes it goes somewhere that even like three issues earlier mm-hmm. you literally could not have seen coming yeah yeah well i definitely uh, believe I, that and as a result I I really am unsure how I feel about it, but I I loved I loved the series nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Like even even if it is an unsuccessful ending, and I'm not sure if it is, but I loved I loved all of it. Um, and as a not really on here, but kind of on here, mm-hmm. the surface and material as well from COD mm-hmm. are we're all in weird ways all sort of one book for me. Like his his comic output in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, has 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 had a uh, he's a really interesting writer and mm-hmm. and I've I've really appreciated stuff in, in 2015. Um, GI Joe versus Transformers mm-hmm. is on there, right? Uh, just we've talked about this book a lot. Yeah. I, I don't think I really need to say anything more than you and I both love it because it's nuts. Yes, yeah, it's absolutely insane. Um, it's, it's a genuinely wacky book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and a wacky in a way that is consistently surprising and inventive and seemingly at odds with the material, mm-hmm. which is what makes it such a compelling book. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and because it does just go further and further, mm-hmm. every time you think it's going to come back to, uh, not even like toyetic safety, but Sanity. Yes. <laughs> it will find somewhere else to go. Yeah. That is, that works on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Works on a, I know who he's nostalgic for or who he's, he's homaging. Works on a, just on a pure pl- plot level, what the fuck is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but also works on a formalist level. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a book that, you know, for a comic called Transformers, is very willing to transform itself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and so uh, it, it's it's a very appealing for all of all of those all of those reasons. Yes, uh, I'm okay. I'm going to speed through the rest so that you can you can do yours. The Judge Dread material by Rob Williams and Henry Flint in 2080 specifically, uh, which I'm not even going to pretend to I can pronounce <laughs> the title of, but they did a sequel to Titan this year right. that was just a blinder. Mm-hmm. Just staggeringly good, um, and really, because Titan was very good as well. Titan was the story where Dread goes to the 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 off-world prison colony, uh, where judges are sent, corrupt mm-hmm. judges are sent. And uh, did you read Titan? Did I read Titan? I want to say I. Did or I read like the first three or four parts of it. I don't remember. Yeah, if ba- basically, I, yeah. something something is wrong. They know something's wrong with this off-world colony, uh, a prison colony, staffed, uh, filled with former judges. Right. Uh, and Dread and other judges go to investigate, and everything goes to shit. 
like really badly, terribly to shit. Right. And it ends with the prisoners being given another moon to start their own colony on. Mm -hmm. And the follow-up is basically, that went even worse. (laughs) And because of that, things start happening in Mega City 1 that on like a John Wagner scale of changes the game mm-hmm. happens. And it's a, it's a much shorter, it's not like, you know, Day of Chaos, which is, you know, 36 odd parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the storyline is much shorter. I want to say it's like maybe just 13 episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, you know, it's getting to the core of what does Dread believe? Uh, can Dread admit that he's wrong? When faced with overwhelming evidence that he's wrong. But also, how does this affect his relationship with Hershey? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, who he's, he's, he's known since she was a rookie, since he was training her. Mm-hmm. And now she's the chief judge. And now she's having to make these decisions just to save the city mm-hmm. that, that are things that Dredd will never let himself believe. Because mm-hmm. Dredd sees things in a very binary fashion. Right. And you're right or you're wrong with Dredd. Mm-hmm. And Hershey has to be political. And his sense of betrayal that she is being political, that she is looking at this other side, and her sense of betrayal that he can't allow that she is right to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have this like big epic, like, oh my god, the city is going to you know get completely fucked. And at the heart of it is these two people who were never friends but who have this amazingly close bond mm-hmm. are both feeling betrayed by each other. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And both of them also will never quite understand that the other one feels the same. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, are they're, they're just enough, skewed enough off of each other's point of view mm-hmm. that they only see their own betrayal. Mm. That they don't see that they're also betraying the other person. So you have this, like, personal inter- interplay with this massive story. It, and it's just wonderful. It's really, really great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say the collection's coming out summer next year. And and when it does, because I think they're putting Titan and the follow-up in the collection. Mm. But when it does, like, that's going to be... Like, that might be the... You want to get into Judge Dredd? Here's the one book you read suggestion for me. Because it's such strong work. And, and it's all there as well. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like, get the sense of... Dread is a character who's been around for almost 40 years mm-hmm. without to read 40 years worth of material. Right. Because Williams really manages to get the fact that these characters have a history in there. He really manages to get that down. That's amazing. And so, yeah, it, it's, it, it's super, super strong. What else? Wicked and Divine, which I know that you are not a fan of as much as I am. I caught up with it two weeks ago, last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just it's just doing great stuff. Really, it's telling a very good story, but also it's doing formally great stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it, they're in the middle of their their run of guest artists, and literally in the middle of that run, Jamie McKelvey comes back for an issue which is literally recycled artwork from earlier issues. Wow! Throughout the entire thing, which is just amazing. That's really amazing. That's, that's really genuinely stunning mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. do that. Um, but you, you, in that you also have the story of, you know, the, the, the mythology of the series. There's these godlike creatures who are essentially awakened human beings who discover they're godlike creatures. Once they discover their power, they have two years and then they're dead. Mm -hmm. Um, and unsurprisingly, 
that makes a lot of people very nervous, both the gods and the non-gods. Mm-hmm. And building that out, like there's a wonderful uh, issue that's drawn by Tulilote, which is really about uh, harassment of women on social media. And in a strange way, weaponizing that, which is just, it, it's very subtle and it, it, in a weird way, it's like what science fiction should be because it's very much commenting on something that is real, but is doing so in such a way that takes it, maybe not further, but takes it in a direction that does something with it that you would not necessarily imagine being there. Mm-hmm. You know, and so so that element of it is really, really, really impressive to me as well. And the fact that every arc slash straight paperback ends with a ridiculous what the fuck moment is very appealing to me as well. You know, it, it's, there's there's something about that that just in a narrative sense really appeals. Um, what else is on here? Uh, the Multiversity, right. the Mars series, was just great. Yeah. Like, I, it might be the comic I've reread the most this year. Oh, interesting. That series. I, I, I just, I keep going back to it. I keep going back to it and I keep finding things that I love about it. Every single reread. It doesn't get old for me at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said to you earlier on the podcast this year, rereading the finale, which didn't work for me the first time, entirely worked for me the second time. Hmm. Uh, and, and really made me love the entire series much more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that, I think that was a really strong series. Uh, I think Morrison's had a good year. Annihilate was great. Yeah. Uh, Nameless is really good. I caught up with Nameless recently as well. Yeah, and I'm waiting I, on that last issue. You know, it, again, it's a horror series and it's very, it's very horror series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, 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 Maybe the the most horror I can imagine from I can remember from Morrison. Yeah, you know it's it's very much when Morrison and Burnham were doing Batman uh, Incorporated. Mm-hmm. It became a uh, an increasingly creepy series. It really did. Yeah, it, it really did. Yeah. And Nameless is just just the creep, just mm-hmm. the creepiness, <laughs> and it's really well done. Mm-hmm. But it is creepy. It, it is a story that, that makes me feel very uncomfortable. Uh, and, and in a way that feels, as a, you know, a long-term Morrison fan, feels very reminiscent of the, the outer church stuff of the Invisibles. Mm. But, but more so. Because mm. the Invisibles also had the, you know, I'm cool as fuck and I'm an anarchist. Hey, the 1990s. <laughs> Throughout the whole thing, do you know what I mean? So you'd have the church, but then you'd have King Mob pop in and be like, catchphrase, shooting something, catchphrase. And so you'd always have this grounding level from the outer church, whereas Nameless is just the outer church. Nameless mm-hmm. is just, there's creepy, horrible shit happening, you guys. Oh, it's got creepier. Yeah. Oh, it's got creepier. Yeah. What is reality? Who knows? Because everything is creepy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, so yeah, I, th- I think Morrison's had a really, really good year, sort of despite himself. You know, if you told me at the beginning of 2015 that Morrison would come through this year and you'd be like, oh, he's doing really interesting work, I wouldn't have believed you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that he really has. Okay, last thing. The the massive John and Quarterly anthology. Uh, what's it called? It's called John and Quarterly, 25 Years of Contemporary Cartooning Comics and Graphic Novels. Purely because it's a fucking massive anthology of really good comics. Right, right. That you know, thing like, is enormous. Yeah. It, 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 there's so much there that I kind of feel that, you know, 
unless you've decided that anthologies don't get on your best of list, I don't understand how you could read it and not be like, yeah, there's so much there that is really great. <laughs> you know? It, it, you know, there, there's there's new stuff from, you know, so many cartoonists I adore. The mm-hmm. game stuff is almost worth the price of admission by itself. And there's so much other stuff in there as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's my bunch. Wow. Wow. Well, that is that is a good, also, solid list. So for 2016, there's two that I've only just started, but I'm super excited about. Yes. I would make my list if it wasn't fact that two issues is kind of a bit much. Mm-hmm. But Monstrous, I loved the first two issues. Mm-hmm. And Unfollow, I loved the first two issues. Yeah, I, I it's so funny because uh, uh, flipping through, trying to get a sense of what I read and appreciated by by very quickly flipping through uh, our archives, I kind of had a little, you know, in it tucked away in one of the capsule reviews because we had talked about the issues both pretty extensively. I had this thing of like, boy, I really am curious to see what the second issues do and if they pull it off. And I think, I think to me, I think the second issue of Monstrous um, worked better for me than the second issue of Unfollow. Cause I think the second yeah, you, issue, you, you were a little bit on the fence about the second issue of Unfollow. We talked about it last time. Yeah, exactly. Where it was like, it was fine, but it didn't really, you know, uh, rewrite things for me the way that it did for you as far as like, oh my God, you know, what does this mean with regards to the first issue? Whereas Monstrous, I think, did kind of what I like from a a, a second issue, which is very much like, okay, this person did all these things in the first issue. Here are some of the repercussions of that. And also like, here's the new situation that we put the person in that that sort Mm -hmm. of takes those themes and embellishes them, yeah. which sort of makes sense. I mean, Unfollow is very much a, um, you know, it's just, it's just a very, they're, they're different beasts from each other, but I do, yeah, yeah. but I did appreciate them both, certainly. So. Jeff, what's your list? Uh, my list. Okay. Um, I'm going to break the list into a couple of different sections because of course I didn't necessarily stick to 10. I was like, Culling and culling and culling and also managed to keep things that hopefully somewhat fast as a result. So first off, I want to talk very briefly about the things that I read this year um, that were either rereads or I know for a fact didn't necessarily come out. Things that weren't necessarily new for me or really new for anyone, which is to save rereads. Uh, for example, Adventure Comics 416. Um, really sort of 416 through 420, which I all pick, you know, I picked up a bunch of issues as part of the Supergirl sale at 99 cents a pop. And the Supergirl stories in the front were actually pretty terrible, but the reprint materials in the back, including like the Alex Toth, Black Canary story, uh, the Silver Age Supergirl story from Adventure Comics 416, uh, Mary, the girl with a thousand gimmicks. I love that story. I was just like, how the fuck do I get more of this character and these this, sort of these storytellers? And I don't know if that's necessarily ever going to happen. But again, 416 through 420, because it's got stuff like old stories from the Enchantress and things like that, really enjoyable in reprint. Similarly, uh, as Graham knows, because he was there when I bought them, I grabbed a whole bunch of comics from Cosmic Monkey when I was in town visiting. And uh, of those, um, I 
dearly, I really enjoyed reading Captain Marvel issues 35 through, I can't remember if it's 39 or 40, but essentially the entire Trial of the Watcher sequence by Steve Englehart and Al Milgram really took Englehart kind of firing on all cylinders um, and and taking, going a very different path with the idea of what it means to be a cosmic Marvel comic than what Jim Starlin had done before. Um, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, Englehart embraces the the grand continuity of it as he tells a story about the the history of the Kree, essentially the entire history of Ua to the Watcher and the whole purpose of Captain Marvel in the universe, which he does sort of that sort of everything, you know, is wrong kind of twist that, uh, that, that we're all very used to, um, just starts out right. And, and then also just outright throws in like, well, you can't, you can't be cosmic without lysergic acid. So I'm going to put that in there too. Um, if ever any sentence feels like the most Engelhartian sentence. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So sad, but so true. I also really dug uh, Brave and the Bold 140, Death Aboard the Hellship by Bob Haney, Jim Aparo, in which Batman and Wonder Woman team up to take down a, uh evil billionaire in his super atomic powered yacht rolling around in international waters with an entire uh atlas diorama of all the major settings of the world and a tr- team of trained henchmen apes to do his bidding. So much insanity jammed into one issue. Jammed into three issues, Daredevil 105 through 107 by Steve Gerber, Don Hack, Don Perlin, and Sal Basima, which I ended up reading as part of the Avengers versus Thanos trade, uh, has just is in there because of the inclusion of Moondragon helping Daredevil out of his current jam, which involves... Melvin Belli is an evil villain and Angar the Screamer as the collapse of the 60s and also a very strangely Silver Age DC take on a Daredevil story in which um, Matt Murdock is jumping around as Matt Murdock uh, and confusing everyone and leading to a classic Silver Age, you know, cover of like... I have to act like this in order. It's the only way that I can save the city, but then everyone will know I'm daredevil, you know, great stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I had such a great time reading red Sonia volume one by Roy Thomas, Bruce Jones and Frank Thorne, very specifically for the art of Frank Thorne. Um, It was frustrating that so many of those issues were by Bruce Jones, who I felt was not really quite on the same level of, Conan wavelength or really scary. And this is scary when you think of the comparison, not even as, um, uh, enlightened in terms of female empowerment as Roy Thomas was. So that's, that's really alarming. Like I said, uh, <laughs> I ended up really enjoying Hawkeye one through six by Fabian Natizia and Stefano Raphael, which I ended up reading specifically to find out what happened to Jim Scully, AKA Skull the Slayer and ended up uncovering an entirely different earlier incarnation of a series centered around Hawkeye and what he does in his off hours when he's not an Avenger and it's kind of a, a crime mystery book. So that was kind of an, an amazing little sequence. Uh, and I have to give the big shout out to all the issues of Deathlock, the Demolisher that I ended up buying 
in last year's Comixology BOGO sale and then reading this time around, incredibly satisfying for a frustrating book that doesn't necessarily get to accomplish what it's trying to, but in terms of the amount of style and panache and energy and vibrancy was just really a, a fantastic read. So those are my oldie moldy rereads. The other category, uh, oh, and interestingly enough, strangely for me, even though I have and I love uh, the Marvel Unlimited uh, subscription, um, I did most of my retro reading through sales issues on Comixology uh, rather than digging deep into Marvel Unlimited. And I sort of mentioned that because... Interesting. Yeah, it's surprising to me too, especially considering the stuff that I ended up digging in manga this year. So much of it came directly out of uh, the Crunchyroll app. Um, you know, you've heard me and anyone who follows the website knows that I've written a lot about Sun Can Rock by Bochi, uh, which I discovered on the Crunchyroll manga app. But I'm also, someday I really will have to write in a way that I hope can do any sort of justice to. Um, and Yet the Town Moves is the translated title. Uh, it's Soridemo Machi wa Maoritu by... Uh, Masakezu Ishiguru. It's an amazingly great slice of life comedy about a maid cafe in a small town. And it's a maid cafe in which it, it just merely means that people are <laughs> dress up like maids and proceed to act absolutely nothing like people in maid cafes do. Uh, it has probably my favorite, one of my favorite all-time central comic book characters, which is the quote-unquote main maid who is a 15-year-old, I think maybe a 14-year-old girl, who is incredibly smart and also incredibly airheady at the same time. And just the, the layers to which Ishiguro manages to invest so much fondness, uh, and thought into each of the characters and then create stories in which they, they interact. That was just, there were like a hundred chapters of that on Crunchyroll and every one of them was like a gift. So those were my top two manga experiences, I think of the year, but I also have to give big ups to um, my neighbor Seki, the first five volumes of that by Takuma, uh, Morishigi, uh, which I do not know actually how you would feel about Graham. I keep thinking that you would love it because it is, it's, it's a one joke manga, but it's actually, I think, a, a really fun joke. A good in, joke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In that, uh, the heroine of the book is essentially stuck in class in the back of the room next to Seki, her neighbor. And Seki is always goes to greater and greater, more intricate ways to goof off at his desk in the back of class. And that leads to him, like, actually at certain points, like, building a tiny uh, railroad trestle inside his desk and running model railroads, which he can then spy on through a, a subway grate that he's put in the top of his desk to, like 
he de- there's an entire chapter where he starts pulling out various uh, antique pottery and appraises it, like spends all the time with the jeweler loop appraising it. And of course, at every point, no matter how much she, she can never help looking over and seeing what's happening on his desk and becoming emotionally invested in, in the outcome. <laughs> and the fact that Seki never talks and the two of them are always essentially everything that he does both intrigues her and then frustrates her to the point where he ends up distracting her. Again, it's one joke, but the levels of course that the, the author goes to, to build new things crazily, crazily intricate things for Seki to goof off with at his back desk makes it awesome. Um, I'm a big fan of my love story with two exclamation points by Kazuni Kawahara and Oruko. Big thanks to my love story. My love story! Yeah, it probably is. Uh, which, what not Josh Taban turned me on to? Super grateful. That is just, again, it's not a one-joke manga, even though at a certain point you're reading the same story over and over again, but it is, it's so nice. There's so few stories, I feel, where you get to read, um, at least so few opportunities in our culture where it's like, Hey, here's a story about nice people being nice to each other. And here's people who are in love. And you know, what's amazing about it. They're happy. And it's just like, wow, I did not think that that, you know, like I knew I kind of needed that. I did not think that I was going to be five or six volumes into it and still be like, Oh my God, give me more, you know? Yeah. Um, I've been hearing a lot from the cool kids on Twitter about prison school. Uh, so I went and grabbed the first volume of it because I saw it at the store. Prison School, Volume 1 by Akira Hiramoto, uh, also a sort of joke manga. But uh, uh, it's one that I I would be loath to recommend to you, Graham, because, uh, because on the one hand, it is the classic problematic fave. What happens is it is this entire girls school um it's it's an all-girls high school that has finally started admitting uh men and so for the love of god so there's only five dudes who've managed to enter this school and you see them in the first chapter and you're like okay i know where this is going to go and they're like this is going to be so great there's so many women we're going to be able to finally actually get girlfriends and oh my god boobs and butts everywhere let's look at this they very quickly um through one part cruel fate to one part their own dumb acidness uh, end up being thrown into quote-unquote prison, where they have to live in a prison complex down the road, uh, attended to by various female prisoners, uh, female guards, um, and need to somehow, of course, break out of prison. To, in particular, the super otaku nerd and, you know, the classic manga mainstay, the decent but somewhat super shy uh, kid who ends up meeting a girl in the school who actually likes him and he likes the whole volume is them trying to maneuver, come up with an escape plan to that will allow them to escape for prison for three hours so that he can go on his first date and everything that goes wrong. It's, you know, it's basically the Shawshank Redemption done as a joke, <laughs> and it's really funny. I mean, that is a wonderful. That alone actually kind of makes me want to read it. 
Yeah, yeah. I think next time, next time I'll somehow get the first volume too. It again is because it's that kind of manga. Like it is the the it takes the panty skirts to a new level of of disquietingness. But knowing that it's actually all somehow in it, it's it's I don't know. I mean, again, it's yeah, it's the Shawshank Redemption meets Porky's so far is pretty much exactly what that's like. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing apart from dating myself and maybe confusing Graham, but it is, it is, it's a, it's an amazing little read. Uh, so weirdly enough, yeah, Crunchyroll, super grateful to it. Um, let me give a special shout out to Demon by Jason Shiga, which got me hooked, I think in 2014, but continued in 2015. I thought it sort of flagged, but is building toward an epic conclusion and has had some amazing chapters of just ridiculous insanity. Um, and uh, so that brings me to the stuff that's on on the shelves that I really appreciated. Unbeatable Score Girl, Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, Multiversity, Annihilator and Nameless by Grant Morrison, uh, The Fade Out by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, which I think is my favorite thing that the Brubaker Phillips team has done. Uh, the Humans by Keenan Marshall Keller and Tom Neely. I did not think that I th- I feel that the emotional beats for issue nine and ten should have been reversed, really, in terms of what ends up happening in ten is sort of a very ultra gory over the top grace note. Um Batman 66, issue 20 by Rob Williams, where Joker becomes Joker Man, the superhero, uh, was Really a fantastic revisiting of Silver Age Batman tropes, and I thought really, really delightful. Uh, Black Hood issues one through five by Dwayne Serzinski and Michael Gatos. I think the majority of that came out in 2015. Um, I have not it, read it the two did. issues. Did it, did all of it? Was all of it yeah. in 2015? Yeah, that was remarkable stuff. Um, Monstrous, the first issue, I, for weird reading pleasures, I was completely tickled by KFC, The Kernel of Two Worlds by Shane Edwards I and Tony so Bedard. I wondered if you were going to mention that one. Yeah, I, I kind of had to. I kind of had to. That was just the amount – by the time I ended up writing on it, even before I started spending a lot of time trying to unpack it and what the hell is going on with KFC's marketing team – um, I just enjoyed it as just a, wow, this is so much better than the Mighty Avengers and, and Pirate's Booty team up to kick Atuma's ass. Uh, honorable mentions, really quickly, if you don't mind. Um, I won't go. Oh. Dark Corridor by Rich Tommaso. Uh, I hate to say it, God help me, but every month when it comes up in the pile... Uh, the Walking Dead, there are so many comics that I've fallen behind on, and weirdly, I don't know why The Walking Dead continues to not be one of those comics. And I've had a few people ask me recently, like, when does the comic get good, basically, because they're trying to read it? And I can't answer that question. I honestly don't know if The Walking Dead has ever been good, frankly, is my new conclusion. And yet, it all seems to manage to work for me. Month in, month out, between just the the terrific quality of the art to uh, whatever the hell Kirkman's trying to do, although sometimes with more efficiency than others, just always has me on the hook. I guess it's the monthly book that I almost always catch. Uh, Similarly, Outcast by uh, Kirkman and Azakeda, not nearly as into that, but 
oh my God, Paul Azekita's art and Elizabeth Breitweiser's uh, coloring just astonishes me every time. So that's one I'm always on the hook for. Uh, Convergence Shazam, uh, Kaiju Max by Xander Cannon, which I am far behind on. Like, I loved the first four issues and then I don't know what happened. I think I've got four issues that very well could have turned it in, you know, if it gone a completely different direction. Um, similarly, I don't know what the fuck happened to chilling adventures of Sabrina and afterlife with Archie. There was that like, no guys, we're going to start publishing on a regular basis. And maybe they did. And there's been like five issues that I didn't even know. No, to look I, for I on think the they stands. disappeared after that. Yeah. I think I, they I did think, too. I want to say Sabrina might have disappeared after like issue four or five. Yeah, I jumped on Comixology just to make sure. And I really did enjoy issue four a lot. But yeah, I, I can't. Unfortunately, I feel like those books have got to be. They have no narrative momentum to them, really. So I don't know what the fuck they're going to do, how they're going to manage to bring those back. But I really enjoyed the reading them could, both. Genuinely, the only thing I think they could do at this point is wait until they've got an arc and start doing it as a series of miniseries. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, or something, because it it really is. It's it's just been because it's, it's a shame they fucked themselves up. Yeah, they really did. They built up a lot of momentum. I think Robert Aguirre Sacasa, I'm assuming, just bit off way more than he could chew, or else there were some horrible artistic, you know, crises happening behind the scenes. But it's a shame because those were really, really started to change, you know. Um, I don't know. They're just, they, they, I just really enjoyed those titles. And then I have to say, uh, among the other honorable mentions, even if they were things that, uh, Revenger by Charles Forsman, which, um, is growing on me. I especially enjoyed the Revenger's Trapped One Shot that came out, which sort of reminds me of not really stuff that you would enjoy, Graham, per se, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's really, uh, he's, I don't know, Forsman's, Forsman is sort of sneaking up on Frank Miller territory in a way that I find really surprising to me. Um, Revenger, this is going to be a very strange thing to say. Revenger is, for me, is like Copra mm-hmm. for things that I don't like, but mm-hmm. I like Revenger better than I like Copra. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like it feels like a, it feels like an invocation of a certain era of Marvel. Uh, mm-hmm. In the same way, the Cobra is quite clearly a Suicide Squad cover band. Yeah. Right. But because I have a closeness with Suicide Squad mm-hmm. that I don't have with what uh, Forsman's doing with Revenger, I can appreciate Revenger more in its own terms. Mm-hmm. Whereas Cobra, I continually am just like it's it's just like you're you're just doing a strander you're just trying to do an a strander suicide squad comic mm, interesting i i feel there's more there on the other hand i've fallen way behind on copra i was waiting for the volume three trade and which is i'm overdue to pick up so um but i can see your point and and it's definitely not one that i, I want to thrash out with you but i can I can see how you would prefer one over the other in a way, just yeah. specifically for those very reasons you mentioned. Uh, in my honorable mention out of the two old reads, uh, I don't even really remember how I got a hold of it, but reading Gil Kane's His Name is Savage was a really eye-opening read for me in terms of, you know, 
Kane trying to do something that is very explicitly a graphic novel and unfortunately taking the definition far too literally, I think. Yes. Um, graphic, he said. <laughs> I can do graphic. <laughs> novel, he said. I can get Archie Goodwin to like bury my visual storytelling in bad purple prose. Uh, more entertaining because it was somehow a far humbler um, it shoots shoots for like lesser goals and still maybe doesn't hit them. Four issues of Night Nurse, which I ended up buying again <laughs> in that Marvel Bogo sale. Oh my god, I totally enjoyed that. I totally enjoyed that. They were not good, but they were fascinating failures. And the first couple <laughs> of issues, I just really, it's like, man, I wish that these things had stuck and hit, you know? Because, yeah. so... Anyway, uh, you have totally reminded me uh, very quickly that I did not mention the Al Ewing Loki series, which mm. I, I sh really should have, mm -hmm. and genuinely recommend that you get with uh, on Marvel Unlimited at some point, Jeff. Right. Because he does really smart and unexpected things with the character, but also with the idea of Loki, I guess, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I really, really appreciate. It, it really, especially when it was done, like mm -hmm. when it was a, com a complete picture, mm -hmm. I could I felt like I appreciated it much more than when it was ongoing. Right. Uh, and if we were including things that definitely didn't come out this year, but we read for the first time this year, mm -hmm. uh, the Spirit, Will Eisner's Spirit, I I went through, mm. and it's is it, it when it's at its best, it is everything that everyone says it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And honestly. The Fantastic Four stuff. Mm. I've really yeah. enjoyed reading the Fantastic Four stuff this year. I was going to say that too because there's so much stuff that I had not read. It was shocking for me to re realize how much of it I had because I didn't think there was there would be that much. But yeah, reading the first 102 issues with you this year, uh, I mean, it's probably more enjoyable because honestly I've enjoyed talking about them so much. But honestly, there's a lot of just – fantastic Kirby work in there that is so inspiring to me. Lee is interesting in that on the one hand, the parts where he's good, uh, I really, I really appreciate, but I have to say this, the stuff that, that Stan, that made Stan Lee hit Stan Lee, which was the belief that we were getting sort of deep characterization or something. I really, his characters are, really close to intolerable for me in Fantastic <laughs> Four. Mr. Fantastic is by far my touchstone character I love to hate, except I don't really love it that much, um, you know, of 2015. So, uh, you know, I totally, I, there's so much other stuff that I, I suppose I should have mentioned. Like I'm re flipping through this. I'm like, oh, right. You know, we started off this year talking about the five years later, uh, storyline of Legion of Superheroes. I was really glad to read that. And there were all those crazy issues of Carrie Bates's The Flash. Um, well, actually, in his earlier, in the earlier Silver Age Flash stuff that I read as a result of Comixology sales. And I, I, I actually really enjoyed it reading bits and pieces of those a lot as well. So, you know, overall, it, it was. Oh, and, and, um, uh, for honorable mentions, Brian K. Vaughn's uh, Saga and Paper Girls, which 
Paper Girls kind of started out as a, as I was sure it was going to be a dud, and I enjoyed issues two and three enough that that it's it's a it's a book that I look forward to more with each passing issue. I was actually thinking that Saga has gone off the boil for me this year, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I but again, but again, I was I was also trying to limit it to like my top as opposed to things I have enjoyed because things I've enjoyed would go on forever. Like, I reread all of Levis's Legion, and that genuinely has been one of the more pleasurable reading experiences of, you know, of of the last couple of months. Right. Um, Actually, talking about Levitz, I got mailed the uh, World's Finest Volume 6, which is the the last issues of the recent series where Levitz is doing Earth 2 Superman and Earth 2 Batman. Uh Uh-huh. That's a surprisingly solid comic. Really? Yeah, like, genuinely enjoyable genuinely having something like having a story that runs across the six issues and coming up with a spin on earth to wonder woman that makes me really sad they killed off the character mm. uh in large part because well two things one they established that she is if not immortal then at least centuries old and therefore has been protecting bruce wayne and clark kent since they were kids oh well, that's a uh, little twist. Well, but also her powers exist by her invoking the mythical gods, who then manifests to help her out. Hmm. Which is a super cute idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, Mercury will appear and carry her out of trouble. It's very Kid Eternity-ish, almost. Yeah, but it's 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 a re- like I really like it as an idea. It's part of me was like, oh shit, they should give they should make another Earth through Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. To to have that ability because it's a really nice idea, yeah. um, but he also like retcons in Apocalypse has been after Clark Kent since he was a baby, like Apocalypse destroyed Krypton is is the retcon he he builds in, hmm. um, and it, but it makes it a surprisingly enjoyable story, uh, hmm. which I did not expect. Honestly, I was reading it being like oh, I've got nothing to do tonight. I'm gonna read this. It'll be shit. Only to find out I really enjoyed it. Well, that's fabulous. That that's always great to have those like super pleasant surprises where it's like, oh my god, I'm really grooving on this. Uh, also, for honorable mentions this year, Valiant in general I, I, has just had a really solid year again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that I I think we've done more than enough recommendations. Oh yeah, there's a slew of them. Yeah. So oh. all we're saying is, by everything we've just mentioned, yes. Absolutely everything. Life before the whole, before Christmas Day. Yeah. So yeah, by everything we've just mentioned, go on Amazon right now uh, <laughs> and get two day shipping and buy it for your loved one. <laughs> or maybe you don't love your loved ones enough. Maybe that's that's what happens. Maybe that maybe that's true. In which case, that's not on us. That's on you. Exactly. <laughs> there, there's a, a a beautiful holiday note. Graham, do you have any other closing comments before we? wrap up our our possibly our last official podcast of the year. No, I, I, I think we actually should wrap up because I know you're not, but I am. I'm looking at the time and I know that you have to be somewhere in 45 minutes. Yeah, it's uh, it, there's going to be a lot of uh, terrified scampering about. So yeah, so let, let's wrap it up. People, uh, thank you very much for listening. Not only to this kind of best of 2015 episode uh, slash I was talking about Star Wars for a long time. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, to wait what and back's building throughout the year, it's been very much appreciated. Your uh, patronage in terms of your ears, as well as your patronage in terms of your patronage, 
Um, <laughs> we are available uh, wait, at patreon.com forward slash wait what podcasts for people who like to to know more about that. For our Patreon supporters as is, um, there is a an advent calendar yeah, that, right. that you guys have access to. And if you like hearing Jeff and I talk about shit, uh, maybe you'll hear something <laughs> more in a couple of days after this goes live, just saying wink, wink. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and uh, as long as we're talking about Patreon stuff, we should also give our thanks to the crew over at American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of this podcast, as well as special thanks to Empress Audrey, uh, Queen of the Galaxy. Uh, between those two and our other 112 supporters total, I suppose I should have said 110 supporters, uh, we are able to bring this to you and Baxter Building and so much more. Uh, weekly posts over at waitwhatpodcast.com by uh, me, Graham, and the absurdly talented Matt Turrell every week. So... You know, <laughs> you sound surprised, Jeff. I, you know, it's every just that week. every well, because I, yeah, I do have to say, when I was skimming through, you know, our year of stuff to try and be like, okay, what did what did I read? What did I like? What the hell did I read? I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of material here. You know, <laughs> we can go yeah, back. It's, yeah, it's it's been a year. It's been a, a pretty good year for 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 the the old wait what? Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, this is where I tell you that mm-hmm. we are also available on Tumblr, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. Uh, we are also available on Twitter, at waitwhatpodcast. Jeff is available solo on Twitter, at lazybastard, L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I am also available solo on Twitter, at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. We are available as a podcast at waitwhatpodcast.com, uh, on iTunes and on Stitcher. That's right. Oh, and uh, for those of you who've been enjoying Matt Turrell's uh, articles, and of course you have, he can be found on Twitter at Matt underscore Turrell. That's T as in Tom, E-R-L. Um, definitely follow along with him because uh, he's a sharp cookie, that Matt. Are sh- sharp cookies, is that a thing? I, I don't know. I, I kind of said it. I'm like, yeah, he's a sharp cookie. I'm like, yeah, I had that thing of like, what, you got you have want smart to eat a sharp cookie. Yeah, yeah smart, you have cookie. smart cookies. I don't think yeah. you have sharp cookies. Mm, okay, well, oh. we know who's not a sharp cookie, and that would be Jeff. <laughs> um, we, I, it, this is the last one we're recording, Jeff. But is it the last podcast that's going up this year? I don't know. I we need to can't remember. Uh, we need to talk about that. I don't think that there is. I think that I think that there was a people just keep your ears open between Christmas hey, around Christmas Eve and New Year's because I think there is I think there is something else that Graham and I have to. And if there's about. not, then we're sorry. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, we don't mean to be goofs, but but, but we're you know, yeah, some good stuff. So Graham, do you want to sing us out? I will sing us out. Listeners, whatnots, friends, lovers. Bye! Oh, and happy holidays. Yes, and we'll see you in 2016, if not sooner.